Hey, ebook readers, right now, the Flight Attendant Joe series ebooks are only $2.99. That's Fasten Your Seatbelts and Eat Your Fucking Nuts, Flight Attendant Joe, and I'm Just Here for the Layovers on Amazon, iTunes, Nook, and Kobo, $2.99 each. Hey, everybody, if you enjoy listening to Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe, now is your chance to become a patron of the podcast. Go check out www.patreon.com slash grounded with flight attendant Joe. There's different tiered levels and each of one of them comes with something special and unique, including the Friday debrief, which is a short podcast episode that I record on Friday mornings, just me and my coffee. And it's only available on the Patreon page for patrons. So again, check that out. www.patreon.com slash grounded with flight attendant Joe. Hey everybody, flight attendant Joe here. Are you like me? All summer long, I've been just anticipating and excited about the idea of traveling again. I just want to get out. I want to do something. I don't, when my husband asks me to go check the mail, I'm excited. Okay. I think just getting out of the house and doing something is the most exciting thing right now. I am so thrilled about the idea of being able to travel again that I'm planning my vacations out until 2025, just so I could look at them on a piece of paper and have something that I can look forward to. If you are right there too, and you're excited about travel, I want you to check out Robert and Edgar from the Getaway Guys. I have known Robert for over a decade, and he is very passionate about getting you the best deal for your vacation. They cater to airline employees, their parents, and airline retirees. And I don't know if you know this, but I am an airline retiree. And I'm going to be checking out their website when it's time for me to book my next vacation. They can get great low interline rates with no booking fee. No booking fee. Ladies and gentlemen, that means all that money that you would have been paying for a booking fee is just cash in your pocket, in your wallet, in your purse that you could spend when you're traveling and exploring and having the adventure of a lifetime. And LGBTQ plus travelers, I fall into that category as well. They're authorized sellers of Vakaya, Atlantis, and RSVP vacations. They're a one-stop shop. You could do everything on their website. Hotel, flights, car rentals, vacation packages. I want you to follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Getaway Guys Travel, and then go over to their website, thegetawayguys.com, and start looking for your next adventure because they're going to be there ready to book it for you. Again, that's thegetawayguys.com. Check them out now. Please do it. You deserve it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 50th episode of Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe. I wanted this episode to be really special, and I wanted to actually invite someone on to talk about surviving sexual abuse. I'm I'm so fascinated with how people come out the other end of surviving traumatic childhoods. And unfortunately, I couldn't get anyone to come on who felt confident to talk about their experience. So I thought, fuck it, I might as well just share my own experience. So I have invited back guest Garen Wade, who's been on the show almost as many times as I've been, to take over the show and to interview me about my experiences and how I've come out as normal as possible. And normal's just a guess. So ladies and gentlemen, now it's all up to you, Garen. There you go, take over. Hey, Joe, how you doing? I am doing great. How are you? I'm great. I'm really, let me tell you, I'm very 
I'm I'm very honored, man, that you even asked me to come speak about something that is is very you know is can be such a difficult uh, topic to speak about. And I think I want to say I think you're very brave to to put your story out there. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very excited about today because um, I really don't know what you have planned for me. <laughs> well, I have. Okay, so we have a lot, and we're going to go through uh, many different things. And when I sat down to think about what do I want to ask Joe Thomas. You know, I have to tell you that anytime your name, and this has been for years, comes up in our home, there's, we are always laughing. There's always so, either Jamie comes to me and says, holding his iPhone and says, look what Joe just posted, or we are recounting a story that you told us, and we're laughing. I think at this point, our kids even know who you are. So Aww. you are very, you're very much established in our life. Um, I know you as a funny guy. I've known you for years as a funny guy, and I think that's the way that most people know you. But what I think a lot of people aren't familiar with is this more serious side with you about you and so we're going to start with something fun and fast oh it's a game okay Okay. all right right. and we're going to get to the heavier stuff later oh okay cool oh yeah sure okay Uh, do you mean my weight is that what you're talking about oh i'm (laughs) sorry wait a minute exactly (laughs) this is your show i'm the guest i need to stop taking over okay all right so we're gonna play a little game of word association i'm gonna say the name of a person a place or thing, oh, and you are going to tell me the first word, oh, no. it can be words, that just come to mind. Rapid fire, and I want real and authentic. Okay. Yeah? So, um, Ready? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm slow. Um, so it can be more than one word? Absolutely. You can say whatever comes to mind, just oh, anything. Jesus. You know? I have no clue right? what's coming. I'm very nervous. Okay, go ahead. I love it. All right, here we go. Ready? Okay. Whitney Houston. Love. Melania Trump. Tolerable. The Bay Area. Crowded. Los Angeles. Disgusting. Mike Pence. Homosexual. (laughs) Australia. (laughs) Australia. Fun. Madonna. My childhood. Basically my childhood, yeah. Joan Rivers. Oh, comic genius. Amsterdam. Ooh, lots of weed and prostitution. Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> the movie uh, directed by Ang Lee, Brokeback Mountain. Oh, um, powerful and made me like to camp with straight guys. <laughs> The Black Lives The Black Lives Matter movement. It's about fucking time. Uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton. I voted for her. Your husband Matt Brucker. Saved my life. Alanis Morissette. Ooh, I love to be angry and listen to Alanis Morissette. Passengers that you have served on airplanes in legitimate fashion for years. Gave me so many stories to write books about. Sex. Too old. Retirement. Fucking amazing. All right, man. That's our little game to get us started. Are you warmed up? Oh, yeah, I'm warmed up. (laughs) There was so much more I could have said about Mike Pence, but I just kept it to one word. Oh, well, you know, that's the perfect segue into our next segment because we are going to talk about the now. And then we're later going to shoot into your past. But right now, it is an election year. We are just months away from this election. And I know 
that you and I are both quite political people, and I have a feeling that most of your audience probably is of interest, you know, takes interest in following politics, um, especially this year. So my first question for you is, what do you think about Kamala Harris as vice presidential pick? And, and, and why? Why her? Oh, my God. This is what people feel like when I'm asking them questions. It's terrible. Um, so <laughs> I actually have been a Kamala Harris fan. Um, Pamela, Kamala, Kamala. I always say it wrong. Yeah, it's Kamala. It's like Kamala. 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 I think I even like said Kamala, it wrong. Kamala. 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 Yeah. Um, I've been a big fan of hers. You know, I lived in the Bay Area. She was the attorney general in California, and then she became a senator. And, you know, there's a lot of um, – I was just talking with a gay co ex-co-worker acquaintance of mine who was like, she's not far left enough. And I was just like, well, you know, isn't it good to be in the middle? Isn't it good to be not too far left, not too far right, but just like kind of in the middle? And then people lean left, lean right. I'm like, that's what I'm used to. And he was just like, she put so many people in prison. She put so many black people in prison for weed for stupid weed rules. And I said, well, you know, you have to also remember that was the rule at the time. She was just doing her job. The The big thing is change the law and then she doesn't have to do that part of the job. And it reminds me of when I was a flight attendant and when you had to, remember when you had to shut your phone off on the airplane? Yeah. Oh my God, let me tell you, I fucking hated doing that. I hated walking through constantly and saying, could you shut your phone off? Could you shut your phone off? Could you shut your phone mm. off? Could you shut your phone off? And I would get feet. I would, it, it made our job so much more difficult. And then once we didn't have to do that, I was like, oh, that's great. I, I don't have to follow this rule anymore. I don't have to follow this law. It makes my life much easier because I also did not agree with that rule, but it was my job to enforce it. Um, and did you feel like, I mean, what was the the range of um, reactions you got? Was it mostly like eye rolls and and uh, obedience? Or did you like have any altercations with people over that? Oh, well, most of the time people would just be like, oh, this is absurd. And I'd be like, yes, I understand that. But until we get to 10,000 feet, you have to go ahead and power that off. Thank you so much. No, sir. No, sir. You just shut off the screen. You act like I don't have a fucking phone and I've never seen a phone before. That would happen all the time. But um, okay. but going back to um, her as vice president, as the pick for VP, I think she's great. Now, I would have been okay also if she wouldn't have been chosen as VP, but if, and if Biden wins, her becoming a, um, the attorney general, like Barr is, I think she would have done a fine job in there. But I think as VP or this can't, she's going to do great. I mean, she's a very strong woman. She's very smart. She knows laws. And I think we need some educated adults back in the White House. Now, there's a lot of people who are looking at that pick who might feel that she wasn't the right choice. The criticism there is that you know uh, she represents, she's a senator from a state that is not electorally going to gain anybody anything. So what do you make of those who thought that perhaps someone, um, you know, from the from the Midwest uh, or someone like Val Demings in Florida, uh, perhaps Stacey Abrams in Georgia, that these people would have been able to pull a state that, you know, electorally the country really needs to the Democrats really need to win? Um, do you think there's any validity in that? Or you think we're just in such a mess right now that you just need the smartest person and she's it? Well, I think he was smart now. 
I think he was smart to choose a woman, and I definitely think he was even smarter to choose a, a woman of color. Um, I think that's where we are now in the country. We're so divided that any little thing that's going to bring voters in is something that you have to think about. So in that situation, I don't know if it matters where the person is from. In my mind, I don't give a fuck. In my mind, I'm like, I need somebody who's going to be able to debate well, who's smart, and who actually has a plan for what's to come. Because whoever takes over in January, let's hope it's not the current administration. That's let's I mean, because that's that's like that's like it, it's kind of like if we were in a fucking rowboat. And the Titanic was burning and sinking, and then you wanted to get back onto the Titanic. No, that's, that's <laughs> not how it works. This country is burning, it's sinking, and you're in a life you're in a lifeboat. You want to be able to get away from that. You want to be able to try to fix your life now that you've gotten off this crazy ass boat. And I think that's where. So it, I don't think it matters too much who it was. Um, as long as I think they're qualified, and I think she is qualified. Why do you think it matters as a white guy? As a white guy, well, why do you think it matters? Um, and I ask this question because so often I think this question is asked in the, uh, you know, to people like myself, like brown guys or black guys or, or whatever, people of color. But as a white guy, why do you think it's important, and it might sound like an obvious question, to have a person of color on the ticket? You know, I was talking with a friend of this the other day and he asked me, why do you like her? And I named all of these things. I was like, she's strong. She's powerful. She's educated. She knows laws. She's going to be able to debate Pence. She actually will probably make him cry, which I'm actually boned up about thinking. And, um, <laughs> and then he said to me, I'm glad you didn't mention gender or race. And I think that's a good point. I, um, if she was white and had these same qualifications, I would, be on board with her. Um, she's a person of color and has these qualifications. It always goes back to it's important for kids to see people who look like them in these types of positions and roles. So I think she's got it going on. And I think she'd make a great VP and eventually um, POTUS. Yeah, I think so. I think so as well. Um, besides COVID-19, which is, of course, the, the topic of the world, right? What is the one issue in this election that uh, you believe is the most important? So take COVID out of the equation, and what is the one issue that if you know you could choose is the one that we need to rally around the most? Though there are many. Oh my God! You are, our country is burning. You want me to pick one fucking thing? <laughs> this is yeah. almost a question that I can't answer. Um, but taking COVID, I'll COVID nineteen out of the situation. What's the one thing? that we have to rally around in January and try to fix? Is that what you're asking me? Correct. Oh my God. Well, of course I, I would, I think the most important thing is to make the country feel confident again in our government and in our leadership. So there's, well, I'm sure there's millions of people in the country who are very proud and feel very confident and think that this is the, the right path for the country. I do not. I think we are headed to destruction and fucking living in the Hunger Games in like 20 years. But <laughs> right now, 
I think we need adults. And I think the first thing they need to do is kind of make people, give people that feeling of, okay, okay, yeah, everything's going to be fine. I think just if Biden and Harris win, I think there's going to be this sigh of relief. They might not even have to do much other than win. Right. For, for right. people to just take a breath and go, Oh God. Okay. 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 Now. All right. That problem solved. So let's dive into some other major things that need to be taken care of. You know, we, we need to fix healthcare. We still need to fix healthcare. And also we have to do something about police and education reform. Um, if the, if there's one thing, I know everyone has their hot topics, right? Everyone has, Oh, this and Oh, this and Oh, this, but I've realized in the last four years, how dumb people are. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I ever realized it until 2016. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of the reason people believe the things they do today is because education has failed them. Absolutely. So, and, and it might be a, might be a, uh, um, a result of watching completely different news sources, right? Like I'm convinced that if you're a Fox News viewer, that you are not watching the same news as a CNN or MSNBC person. Oh, well, that's a like fact. at all. That's a fact. You know, <laughs> something that Matt and I like to do every once in a while, just to, I think he does this just to get my blood pressure running, is, <laughs> well, first of all, I don't like news at all anyway. I, uh -huh. I, I, I just don't like, I don't like news stations that benefit from who, uh, let me rewind. I don't like these news stations that are all propaganda and just try to tell you what you want to hear. And as much as like CNN and MSNBC, they do the same thing that Fox does, except on the opposite side, except Fox news lies a lot. And, Correct. um, you know, see, but still CNN and MSNBC and all those people who host those shows, their goal is to tell you what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't like that. Um, but you are quite, you're, you know, you are, I consider you um, to be quite educated in terms of the political realm. And I wonder where do you source your news then? If, you know, is it like a myriad like of sources? Like you're looking across many different sources or do you read it more than listen to it or what? Um, I do. Well, first of all, thank you for calling me educated. That's actually a compliment in 2020. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I watch a little bit of CNN a little bit. Um, I watch the nightly news. I really like to get a lot of my information from just like Denver's 5 p.m. news. Because if you watch those types of news reports, they tell you just the facts. They say on today's episode, Garrett interviews Joe. Moving on to the weather, there isn't a, on today's episode, Garen, who thinks this way and who thinks this way and who thinks this way is interviewing Joe, who we think is, like, I, I don't like all that, you know, what you, I don't care what. Like political thinking. commentary. I you're not in for the political commentary. Yeah. Right. I don't care about punditry. that. Let me make the decisions myself. So you just tell me, Donald Trump said this today. And then I will take the information and I will investigate. I will research it. I'll see everything else. But I don't care what you think about it. I love that because I feel the exact same way yeah. about that. I think that's one. I think you're you're spot on. You know, I can remember 
being a kid and my being my grandparents home in Louisiana and they would like, like at five o'clock walk to the TV, turn it on for like 20 minutes, get the news, switch it off, walk out. And I think it was probably a better time. But I, I will. Yes. But I will tell you this the other night we were watching. Um, I think we were watching CNN because it was when Biden picked Harris and it was the news of the day. So we were watching it and they were talking about it and they're like, Oh, do you think this will be good? How do you think this is going to go? And Matt said, we should see what's on Fox news. So when he says that I have to like clench up my butt cheeks, grab one of the cats, you know, I need to <laughs> calm down for a minute. So he flips it over to Fox and I'd say we watched it for like 10 minutes because what was going on was there was no talk of Biden. There was no talk of Harris, but, what they were talking about was they had Donald Trump on the call. He was actually on the show. And because, you know, he has them on speed dial and they drop anything they want. He believes it's his propaganda channel. So it's like we're like two steps from North Korea, but people are acting like that's not happening. So <laughs> so he's on there and we end up watching it for like a good 10 or 15 minutes because he may... He is just rambling about nothing. I couldn't even give you an example of what he was talking about. It was just such nonsense. And he would, he talked, he was saying how, you know, she doesn't like red meat and she's going to take all the meat away and Joe Biden doesn't love God. And it was just so like Saturday Night Live. Um, yeah. You, you, be, you become, obs you, you, you're watching it and you're like, Wow, if this was another country, I would be like, those motherfuckers are in deep shit. So because it's the United States, I'm going to say, y'all motherfuckers, we're in trouble. <laughs> because, yeah, our, I mean, because our president is an imbecile. But go ahead. I didn't mean to. I hope that no, answers please. your question. Exactly, it does. I'm going to hit you with, with one more, okay? Bear with me. Okay, Carry, uh, hit me. This Leanne, is fun. <laughs> Kellyanne Conway is the uh, senior advisor oh, to the president. Her Jesus. daughter oh, yeah. is um, is a is is a, not a proponent of the Trump administration and openly um, counters her on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it is quite hilarious to see her mom post something and see her. I believe she's a teenager, teenage daughter counter I think, her. I think she's fifteen um, or something. She can't even vote. Yeah, she's, yeah. yeah, she's young, but she's smart. Um, and uh, I just wanted to know. It made me think. Could you be, because I know you don't have children, but could you be in a relationship with somebody who was, had opposing political views, strongly opposing political views? Could you be with Matt Brucker if, let's say, he was like, I like Trump? Well, now I have to um, think about that, which is interesting because the other day I just asked him this. So there's this thought that popped up in my head the other day where I thought, oh, my God. Is anyone making up a plan for how they're going to interact with their family members who or their friends who vote for Trump this second time around? Because in 2016, we knew he was an asshole. I'm actually reading a book right now. It's called Assholes, a theory. And it was written in, it was written in 2010, okay? 2010. Mm -hmm. And on the second page, the author calls Donald Trump an asshole. Like Six years before he was even going to become president. Everyone has known this, right? But in 2016, we didn't really know 
what was going to happen. Like we didn't realize that we'd have to be fighting for the United States Postal Service and that science now was questioned. And, you know, the absurdities and the rewind that we're doing in this country going back to the 19th century is is quite frightening. So we didn't know that in 2016. So, you know, when when, you know, he said he was he could kill anybody, shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, he wouldn't lose any votes. We thought he was crazy, but he won. So now we've had four years of him as president. There's no question about who he is, what his agenda is, and how he gets the things done by dividing people. This is something that if you read his, his niece's book, Mary Trump's new book about him, she explains the why, what, how of why Donald does things. And he, this is how his dad raised him. His dad put him in this position for him to become the person he is. So the other day I was sitting at home and I was thinking, I wonder if anyone's has a plan of what they're going to do if their loved ones, family members, friends vote for Trump again in 2020, because now it's a completely different thing than 2016, because now we know what he's about. Like for mm -hmm. real, for real. So I brought Matt into the off into my office. I said, I had this idea, like, what's the, are you thinking of like, what's your plan going to be if people you love or care about vote for Donald Trump again, because now it's like they're, they're doubling up on all his ignorant racist comments and whatever. And can you be friends with somebody or, or stick with somebody who believes those things? I said, because let me tell you, if you were a Trump supporter, I would get to, if you were voting for Donald Trump, I would divorce you. So there's the answer. <laughs> It took, what did Matt say? It took me a long time to get to the answer, but well, he, <laughs> him and I are completely different people. He was raised, um, family's very important to him. He will stretch that, he will stretch out his love, his patience, his compassion for family because family's important to him. Family means nothing to me because I didn't have a family that showed me that family was important. So I would have, no, if I had a family member who's like, I'm voting for Donald Trump and I stand for everything he does, fuck off, don't need you in my life. I don't care if I've known you since I shot out of my mom's hoo-ha. Doesn't matter to me. <laughs> so yeah, if Matt came to me and said, I'm really not a big Biden fan and I'm gonna vote for Donald Trump, I would be counting my 50% of my divorce and I would be moving on. That's exactly, it's actually the, um that's the answer I expected you to say. So, oh yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I, it causes you know a couldn't. lot of division among people. Yeah, it's very hard to stomach. Well, yeah, It'd be very I, hard to I just couldn't do it. Like if you if if you know, I, I honestly don't know. I probably couldn't be married to a Christian who prays at the table every night and who reads the Bible before bed because I, as an atheist, would think that's odd and we don't really have much in common. So, but that's a whole different conversation. But for answering your answer, I don't think I could be married to someone at this point who um, voted for Donald Trump. Okay, and I lied to you because I said it was the last one, but I have one more. Okay, what do you think about the Black Lives Matter movement as it's playing out now and how it intersects with this greater discussion around uh, the force that police officers are using on what seems largely people of color. 
I always go back to that time a couple years ago. I think it was like 2014 or 2016 when those white dudes in Oregon like took over this building and they were mad about, oh God, I don't even know the details. Now you're making me sound stupid, but, or wait a minute, you're not making me sound stupid. I'm sounding (laughs) stupid on my own. But there was a situation where all these older white guys took their guns and they went to some place in Oregon and they were demanding, you know, you can't take over our land. This is our governmental land, blah, blah, blah. I'm probably getting some of those details messed up. But, But, um, what happened was the police department and the sheriff's department and the government's like, well, just give them their space. Let them work this out. Mm. And, um, and then, of course, eventually they were arrested and they were, you know, they were brought on trial. And then I believe Donald Trump, you know, um, whatever you call it. What is it? See, don't say I'm smart because I don't know anything. <laughs> That's right. Um, what is it called when the president... He pardoned them. Yes, Jesus or what? Christ. This okay. is why. This is why I'm the interviewer. Um, so they were arrested, convicted, and then the president pardoned them. I believe so. So, okay. so getting back to your, st- I always think about that because I do think white people are given more opportunity. Like, if you have a bunch of look at all the people that were protesting masks. There's videos and there's pictures of white guys in masks screaming and cursing and they have their big fucking bazookas first of all who brings a bazooka to a protest okay but um (laughs) like screaming and the police are just standing there now imagine black lives matter people screaming and cursing and having bazookas a bazooka imagine a black person protesting and they have a rifle I'm not going to lie. There's going to be, it's a different outcome. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's it's like someone said once that the quickest way to shut down the NRA is to have every black male in this country between the ages of like 21 and 40 go out and buy a gun. Oh my, first of all, if that happened, the, you know, they'd be, there'd be eight year old police officers because they, the government and the white folks in America couldn't get cops fast enough. You'd have eight-year-olds with guns walking down the street. So, but black people, black Americans have all the right in the world to buy guns. So go out and buy as many guns as you want. Let's see what happens with the NRA. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. going back to what you were saying, there's so many people that say, I don't know why the black people are so upset. I don't, things have gotten better. Why, why is this happening now? And the thing that I like to tell people is actually this has been happening for 400 years and they're, they're tired of it. We're tired of it. People are just tired of, I'm tired of turning on the news and seeing white people, white police officers killing innocent black people. And just because you listen, just because you had some weed in your system from a week ago, you know, have you noticed that that's what they like to do now? They like to say, um, well, you know, they had, they had some cannabis in their system, bitch. I have enough cannabis (laughs) in my system to make Snoop Dogg walk funny. (laughs) So So that means nothing, but I think it's time. I think it's time for a change. I think it's time to pull down all these Confederate statues that let's remember didn't come up. were not put up until decades after the civil war. 
you know. Right. You're like a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't. A lot of people thought the Civil War ended and then all of a sudden, no, 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 no. This didn't happen until like decades later. And do you want to know why? Do you know why they put them up? No, I don't. It's because because black people were moving in and they were like, we don't like this. So we're going to we're going to try to intimidate them. Let's put up some Confederate flags and wave this Confederate flag around and wave this statue around. They'll move out of our neighborhood. Mm, How lovely. So, you know, systemic racism. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is that. You can't just fix it with a little, oh, I guess this is, it's so deep into our society that I say this jokingly, but I'm probably serious that we can't fix all this until we start over. Mm -hmm. Well, the best thing that I've read on this topic is this assertion that all of this does not change until white people start to view this issue as something they need to solve instead of something that they need to empathize with the black community about. Mm, yeah. that Well, that makes sense. But you know, you can't really empathize. It's hard to have empathy. You know, I'm reading this book right now about the dangers of empathy where mm-hmm. you almost having too much empathy could possibly be bad because it can make you make the wrong decisions because you're putting yourself into someone you're 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 placing yourself into someone else's situation and you might not make the best decisions because you're thinking about an individual's per se instead of the entire issue that's going on does that make sense like you're reacting more emotionally than rationally right and, and and that's you know humans we love to move with them. We love to move forward with emotion. Emotion drives us so much that sometimes you can make the wrong decision based Mm -hmm. on, you know, oh, I have so much empathy for this person. Instead of thinking rational and just saying, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be educated, I'm going to make rational decisions. So I don't, I'm trying to pull away from the idea of empathy and just having compassion for people. Because, you know, if you live in a hut in South Africa, if I have empathy for you, there's a high probability that it's I'm lying. If I'm walking around going, this is terrible. I know how you feel. No, you don't because you live on the 15th floor in Miami. Right. So you don't know. What you have is compassion for these people, and you can show kindness by saying, that life, it looks rough, and I'm going to donate some money to that person or that family or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you're saying basically that if people not not to assume the empathizing position, but instead to say like this may not be my experience or my life, but I can see that this is you know deeply affecting you and your community. I want to help in whatever way I can. Right. So when you take that into the consideration with the white population not being able to understand the black, you know, black lives matter and what black people have gone through in the history of this country, you know, you might not be able to have empathy because you don't have that experience, but you can have compassion. You can say, I know, I don't know what your life has been like, but I'm sure it's been very fucking difficult. Let's try to fix it. I like that, Joe. And, um, and 
And you're, but you're right though. And I've actually had friends, gay friends who are like, why do I care? I'm not black. And I'm like, Ooh, well, you should care because even though you're not a person of color, you're still a human being. We're all on this fucking blue marble together in space and we have no place else to go. So why not get along instead of just killing each other? I mean, it's so easy. You know, it's not rocket science. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's just having compassion for the people who are on this planet with you, no matter what color they are, what they look like, if they were born a boy and want to be a girl, if they were born a girl and want to be a dog, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And of course you and I would agree on that, you know, very easily. Yeah. I don't, I don't see how people are so excited by this, you know, by, by, by difference. I mean, just love everyone. It's not that hard. They're scared. People, people are afraid of anything that's, they're not comfortable with. I've had people who are afraid to go to an Indian restaurant. I've had people because of the food. Oh, it's so different. Well, no, it's just food. It's fucking rice. You act like you don't eat rice. It's rice and chicken and some other shit. You're fine. I promise. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, well, you know, listen, I don't think you and I are going to solve all the world's problems, but what I do appreciate is the opportunity to ask someone like yourself, who is a white guy, questions that are so important to, really, as you said, the world. And, you know, I think, as I always say, and you know, I've said this to you before directly, is that, you know, your voices are incredibly important. They're much louder than the rest of ours, so you use them. So right. thank you for using your voices. Uh, well, I appreciate that. You know, it's so interesting being asked these questions because I ask you know, when I have somebody of a person of color on the podcast, I usually tend to ask these types of questions. And then when I get off the show, I'm always thinking, here's another white guy asking black people how to fix problems or what do we think we should fix problems. And that's never my goal. My goal is to give them a voice so that people yeah, can- Yeah, a platform. Yeah, so that people can hear directly from somebody who is currently- going through this type of life where they can't walk down the street. Like I, I live in a, I live in a, a suburb of Denver. Um, it's, it's so funny. Cause you know, I moved, we moved from the Bay area and in the Bay area, it's mostly Indians, Mexicans, and um, people from the middle East mm-hmm. and, and Asians. So when we moved here, I was like, this is a white fucking neighborhood. Like I was like, Oh my God, there's no diversity. But that was my first instinct. Now I realize, um, to the right of us is an Asian family across the streets, a Mexican family on the corner. There's a a black family. So it's pretty, it's more diverse than I thought. But I notice when I'm walking down the street, I say, I say hi to everyone all the time. Uh, That's just me, even without the masks. If I walk by someone, I'm like, hi, hi. And um, I always joke that I'm trying to be kind. And then when they ignore me, I want to stab them. But (laughs) I'm one of those people like I'm like that. So, you know, we, we own Jeeps. And have you ever heard of the Jeep wave where, you know, Jeep, Jeep people who own Jeep Wranglers and Jeep Gladiators, they do the Jeep wave, which is like a two finger and a thumb up when your hands on the steering wheel, you just do the Jeep wave. And, um, when somebody doesn't do it back who owns a Jeep, I'm ready to fucking turn the car around and run them off the road. And Matt's like, that's not how you're kind, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> that's what? really funny. No, I had not heard of the Jeep wave. Oh, yeah. But, I, you wave. know, it's that thing, like, I've seen a video of, um, 
it's probably, you know, it's probably two actors, but it's like a guy holding a door open for a girl who's kind of like wa- approaching a door texting and he opens the door for her and she walks through and like, just does not even look up for her, from her phone, does not acknowledge that he's opened this door for her. Yeah. And he just brings her right back out and, and then goes first. I just made me laugh. It made me think of that. Oh, oh, oh my God. I, I share this. I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast, but one time, <laughs> See, I'm as sweet as pie, but I'll stab you. Um, <laughs> my friend and I were in Florida. We were going to a restaurant and we were walking up to the restaurant and um, I was in front and there was an older couple behind us. So I opened the door and I said, go ahead. You know, I let them walk in. And when we get inside, they're in front of us. And then the lady says, oh, we only have one table left. And the old woman goes, we were here first. Garen, <laughs> Garen, I I have to tell you that I almost punched an old woman. <laughs> so I looked at my friend Mike and I was just like, and I think I said this out loud. Can you believe this fucking shit? <laughs> and he said, let's just go. Because he's not confrontational. Me, I'll fight an 80-year-old. I don't care. So I was so mad. So I made this personal policy from that moment forward. And of course, I'm just joking. I wouldn't stab an 80 year old. I would trip her, but I wouldn't stab her. (laughs) So I made this new policy of if I'm walking up into a restaurant, I don't hold the, I will walk in and then hold the door so you can walk behind me. But no more am I letting people walk in front of me in a restaurant because of this old bitch who ruined it for everyone. So, ma'am, I do love that story, ma'am. If you're listening, fucking don't try to steal my seat because I remember where you are, St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, hey, this is a perfect segue into my next what I have uh, written down on my on my uh, MacBook here in front of me. It says stand up comedy, and here's my question. Oh God! All right, okay, we're gonna yeah. dive straight from race relations and um, and me stabbing and old people. Just stand up comedy. Wow. But see, even when you talk about serious things, you still manage to make me laugh. That's Aww, um, that's well, talent. All right. That's what All right. We talked about Joan Rivers earlier. We talked about Joan Rivers just a moment ago. Her daughter, Melissa Rivers, said in her mother's documentary, A Piece of Work, all stand-ups are innately insecure. I think they need that reassurance. It's all a cover. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, um, absolutely. Um, the only reason people do, for me, the only reason that people get up and request wire and need that applause is because they have low self-esteem because normal people, normal people don't need to stand in front of thousands of people and make them laugh or not even make them laugh, but just have that drug. Have you ever heard the song applause by Lady Gaga? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Sure. I was listening to it the other day. That is the most narcissistic fucking song that I don't think has ever been written. I live for the applause, applause, applause. Like she basically answered the question for you. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. um, Definitely low self-esteem. Absolutely. There was one time she was in an interview and I don't have too much of an opinion about her. I, I, I don't like, I don't love her. I don't hate her. I don't, I don't even really listen to too much of her music though. I think she's quite talented. Um, uh, and she was talking about, uh, her struggle growing up, trying to make it as an artist and um, living in New York City and playing all these kind of, you know, dives. Um, and I don't know what the interviewer asked her, but basically her answer was like, I just really wanted to make something of myself. 
And I'm here to tell all young people that basically you can be someone. And when I heard it, I thought like, that's like a really shitty message because I think, you know, teachers, doctors, construction workers, janitors, uh, pilots, just go down the, the line, anybody in this world, you know, who um, you are someone, you have a story. You don't need to be famous to have a story. Do you know what I mean? And I just thought that answer was a little, it, it like rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and I think it, it intersects quite well with this discussion. Like, okay. you know, do you need to have it, this giant audience to feel validated? Now, my question for you, I know you've written three amazing books. I think everyone knows you've written Fasten Your Seatbelts and Eat Your Fucking Nuts, uh, Flight Attendant Joe, and then I'm Just Here for the Layovers. Um, and those have gone on to be really successful comedy books that I feel like people just love. Um, and you've done some stand-up. My question to you is, do you feel that you get a level of validation when you're on a stage in front of an audience? Um, yes. It's, um, it's like a drug. It's very, um, you feel special. So if you've had any types of, like, if you suffered from having friends when you were young, if you have low self-esteem, if you don't feel good about yourself, get into stand-up comedy, but only if you're funny. Because if you're not funny, it's just going to make your life even more um, unhappy and miserable. I can imagine it would be terrible, right? Compounding, like, your <laughs> your problems. Right, your, and I am, yeah. I am not very good at stand-up. I do not think I'm... I'm very funny. Like I have some funny stories, but if you said, you know, get up and do three minutes of funny comedy, I would be like, I'm going to at least need 10 minutes because I'm a storyteller. And at some point it's hard for me. So I don't, I, I love being on stage. I love to make people laugh. It makes me feel really good. Um, but I kind of retired from stand up, and I don't feel like it fits into my, repertoire of what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I figured okay. that out. I figured that out one night when I was in San Francisco and I went into the city to do two open mics, five minutes a piece. I missed the fucking train home and I was sitting in the train station at one o'clock in the morning in the middle of San Francisco. I was like, I am 45 years old. I do not need to be doing this. All right. Cause it wasn't that was my, your moment. Yeah. It wasn't my passion. It wasn't my, yeah. It, it's not my passion. You know what I'm saying? If it was, if I was yeah. 22 and it was my passion, yeah, I'd be doing that. But at my age, there's so many other things I can do to fulfill that need to fill the holes in my heart where there's no self-esteem. What comedians, and I'm not just talking about stand-up now, I'm just talking, you know, in kind of any, across any discipline, um, what comedians have you in the past and do you currently look up to? Well, I, I think Joan Rivers was brilliant and, um, it, you know, she lived a long time, but she could have probably lasted a few more years if she didn't die from that, um, it, you know, surgery that she had. Um, she is somebody that I've always looked up to. I think she's brilliant. Um, I've always looked up to Kathy Griffin. You know, she's one of my favorites because she's very brave and she goes there. And I have a lot of respect for comedians that go there and for comedians that, will push the envelope knowing somebody won't like this, but my job isn't to worry about whether you're going to like it or not. My job is to just tell the funny story. Mm -hmm. um, I like Eliza Schlesinger. I think she's very brilliant and she brings such great, important um, topics regarding women 
to the front line of comedy, you know, where men are watching this and it's an important message. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm going to say my comedy, the people that I find to be funnier are always women. I love that you said that because I wanted to ask you this question, okay. which is um, part story, part question. Soon after I moved to Fort Lauderdale, I was um, working out, I like, had a trainer who was quite young, really young, like 22, I felt like. And he and I were talking about comedy one day, and he said, um, in response to me saying exactly what you just said, Joan Rivers and Captain Griffin, he said, oh, I don't really find female comics that funny. And I thought it was just such an interesting comment to come from such a young person. And so you just said that you tend to find female com- you know, comics, comedians, uh, funnier. Why? And part two of that question is, why do you think there are men in the world that would just categorically not find women funny? Okay, so the first question is, why do I find women funnier? Correct. Okay. Um, I think it's because women will say that women are coming from a different point of view. Comedy has always been so men heavy, you know, men standing up there going, Oh, my wife, you know, my wife cooked chicken cutlets and I wanted pork. So I hit her, you know, I don't know. I think that's what they say in Alabama. So, (laughs) so, but with women, you're getting this fresh, I remember, and it's going to go back to Joan Rivers walking on the today show, not the today show, but the night tonight show with Johnny Carson and, talking of jokes about her husband, about cooking dinner and about like, like having babies. And it was things that people didn't hear. And I think that we are so accustomed to men are funny, men are up there. And when women, it breaks that stereotype of women have to be so polite and so proper and you say the right things. So when I see a strong woman up there, like, fuck you in your dick, I'm like, yeah, bitch, say it again. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, and, and I, yeah. So absolutely. Why. I think gay men generally feel that way, right? Yeah. Don't you think gay guys generally, um, uh, you know, um, feel that female comics are just hilarious? Yeah, and I, well, you know, gay guys usually connect with women, but I, we just watched Adam Devine's comedy special on Netflix last night. You know, Adam Devine, he was on Modern Family. He played the yeah, 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 and he was hilarious. He was very, very funny. We were laughing out loud. So, um, I'm not saying I don't like men comics, and I think men are hilarious, obviously. Um, but I, but me personally, I am drawn to to find women funnier because they're going to say those, they're going to say things that make men uncomfortable. And I like that. I like when, when the status quo is shaken up a little bit. I were, I was, um, have you ever heard of Eliza Schlesinger? Uh, no, I haven't. She's blonde. She's very attractive. That doesn't matter. But she also is hilariously funny. She has so many Netflix specials. Her and her husband. Her husband's a, a chef. They're fantastic. But I was at a friend's house, a straight married couple's house once. And we were watching it. And she's very heavy on the, you know, like I said, the feminism comedy bits. Okay. Mm-hmm. So- me and the wife in the living room laughing hysterically. The straight guy, this isn't that funny. Mm. So this trans- wonder what that's about, right? Well, this is going to transition into your next question, which is why do guys not find women funny? Straight guys. Straight guys. And it's not because, all of them, obviously. Well, not you know, all yeah. of them, but yeah. the insecure Many. ones. Because sure. it's the insecure ones who would be, you know, 
if you're offended by what a comic says, you're insecure. Because the comic is not saying, you, Billy Bob, whatever your name is, you're a dumb whitey. That's not what the comic is saying. The comic is saying, hey, white American straight guy, sometimes you're dummies. Mm -hmm. And who can deny that in 2020? (laughs) So... So I think like that 22 year old guy who's like, I don't find women funny or whatever. It's because he's probably growing up in this culture of, you know, how dare a woman pick on us? How dare a woman mock our relationships? So I think it has to do with that. But it's too bad. I mean, we're talking about a 22 year old in in the last four years. You know what I mean? So it's, it's sort of, scares me that there's 22 year olds who would still be subscribing to that kind of like, um, patriarchy, uh, you know, idea of, um, of how things should be, because of course you expect that from someone much older, but perhaps not from someone in the twenties. Right. At least I don't. But I, you know, the thing with me, um, my comedy really, um, spreads far. I love Jim Gaffigan and he doesn't even say bad words. And you know me, I love to say bad words. You know, he gets up there (laughs) and he talks about his five kids and his Catholic wife and it's very clean comedy. And, um, I love it. But then I, then I go all the way to Joan Rivers, who was very pushed the line constantly with her comedy. And, I tend to appreciate braver comics than the ones who just take it the easy route. Yeah, absolutely. I've always responded to that too. Um, what do you, Joe, what do you make of this entire sort of uh, situation that's kind of unfolding in the press around the Ellen show and Ellen, you know, uh, being alleged to not be ultimately the nicest person everyone has imagined. Oh, no. I don't know what that's really true or not. Are you really going to ask me what I think of Ellen? Yeah, I want to know. Come on, man. I've, I'm, I, I, I'm not a fan. And why? Of her comedy or her show? Oh, her or com- both? No, I think her com- I think her comedy's fun, and I can actually kind of separate my thought process of a perform like like Tom Cruise. I don't like him, but some of his movies are good. Right. Um, you know, so with Ellen. I'm not a fan, but I do think she's funny. She did that special a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I she's just, you know, I don't know. You know, when somebody's so nice, you think, God, there's something up with that person. Yeah. That's what I think. So all these allegations as I'm reading them coming through, I'm not shocked. You know, I'm probably more of the, oh yeah, that actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think because there's been these allegations for years, I think, you know, I mean, Kathy Griffin certainly alluded to it in one of her books. You, I'm sure you read it. Well, they're um, not, I don't even think Kathy Griffin was banned from her show. Was banned from she was Ellen. banned from her show. Yeah, she was oh. banned from the Ellen show. And that's not why I'm not a fan of Ellen. Like, like I said, I've watched her. I've, I think I've even read one of her books. I remember when she came out on her show. It was so exciting with Laura Dern. Changed TV, changed her career. It was incredible. But I just get this vibe that the things that people are saying about her, there's 
there they could possibly be true. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks do, for your perspective. Do you think differently? Um, you no. Know, well, here, listen. I've always said. <laughs> <laughs> said very quietly because I feel like you know America really does love uh, has you know historically loved Ellen. Um, I it, I think that she, she's not my kind of comedy because I do go for far more vulgar kind of um, you know comics like Joan Rivers and Kathy Griffin, just like you, who swear a lot and are kind of you know take it to that next level. Um, I admire that Ellen's able to achieve sort of a similar thing without swearing and, and, and keeping it very clean. I think that's that's talent. But in watching her daytime uh, television show, I don't know. I've never felt like connected to her. I never felt like um, this sort of overwhelming like uh, affinity for her. And so, you know, it's just that. It's just not not feeling, not being like everyone else. Like, oh, it's amazing. I, I don't feel that way towards her as her public persona. I have no idea what's true about the show. Right. But, you know, I'm noticing as I'm getting older, I have less patience for celebrities. Yes. So like, um, like as much as I love Madonna and I talked about her with your husband on his episode on the podcast, I'm still stuck in the Madonna of the nineties before she was on social media. I wish somebody would take her phone away because she's a lunatic. I mean, the, if the, if there's one thing I've learned from social media is that Madonna shouldn't be on Instagram. I was just saying this with someone yesterday. I think I was like, Oh, I miss the days when celebrities were a mystery. And yeah, there's a mystery. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was, like, I was, thinking, I was oh, about to say that. You heard about them on the news. Oh, they bought a new condo, or oh, there's an article in Rolling Stone about them, and you would get excited. Now I fucking know everything in her bathroom because of Instagram. Do you know? Yeah, you saw her wrapping her foot yesterday. No, yeah, do you know? I don't follow. <laughs> listen, I don't follow her on Instagram anymore. The uh-huh. the love affair has dwindled. It's to dwindled. It's, it's more like an acquaintance now. Okay. Like. Yeah. So uh, uh, if somebody says, oh, she's coming out with a new album, my first instinct is, well, it's not going to be good. Oh, OK. We've, we've fallen far, huh? Yeah, we've actually fallen far. <laughs> we have. And I'm the dude that almost got arrested in her backyard. So you can see how as you grow <laughs> yeah. up or as you grow, you change. And I really... I really, you know, and it has nothing to do with her age because you could still be 62 and make as much music as you want. I don't care. It's the, it's her on social media or celebrities in general on social media that have kind of turned me off to the excitement of, ooh, it's a celebrity. Now I'm like, oh yeah, she tapes her foot on the floor and she has fans in her bedroom to make videos. Yeah, I saw that one. I'm like, um, that's like, yeah. Having, okay, yeah, if you're making, if you have a sling hanging over your bed and you make videos for Pornhub, I understand that. But if you're just making a little <laughs> funny music video, like I do music videos on Instagram all the time. I don't have no motherfucking fan blowing. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, yes, I know what you're saying. And I do kind of feel, and I don't know if you would agree, but um, I kind of feel like this year with uh, a global pandemic that I have felt even, the love for celebrity just like fall away because I think what you realize ultimately it means absolutely nothing, right? Like we're so consumed now by what is really a, such an important issue and is affecting every country in the world. And I think it's, I think like before when you didn't have a global pandemic, it's easy to get stuck in your own kind of 
like world and obsessions or fascinations. And I'm kind of feeling like now that, you know, it's serious shit is on the line, that stuff sort of just doesn't matter. You know, like I'm happy people are still producing film and TV and writing books and music and all this stuff. That stuff does matter. But that's different than celebrity, right? Artistry is different than celebrity. Um, oh, absolutely. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, we live in a time where you don't even have to do it. You don't have to do anything difficult and you're a celebrity. You, we live in a time where you could have fucked on a VHS tape and now <laughs> you're a billionaire. Right. So, and I don't get, here's the thing, and this might shock you, but I don't, I, I'm not as mad at Donald Trump as I am at his fanatics. I'm more mm-hmm. mad. I'm more mad at his fans. I don't dislike the Kardashians. I dislike the people who are obsessed with the Kardashians because mm-hmm. it's, it's us, it's society. It's us citizens who put these people up on these pedestals. Like where in time would you have had a sex tape and then became a multimillionaire and known all over the world? Like, Right. We do this, us. And it's because I believe we're so unhappy with our own lives. We live, we have to live vicariously through celebrities. So we put them up on pedestals. We follow them. Like what, what does Beyonce call her, um, her fans? Like the beehive? Dumb bitches get crazy. I think it is the beehive. Yeah. Have you seen like the like Beyonce? Be you know it's fucking bad when Beyonce has to come out on Instagram and say y'all motherfuckers need to slow down because you're making me look bad because y'all crazy. <laughs> like that is a problem. That has nothing to do with Beyonce. Like and it it, it was a couple years ago where her and Jay Z were invited to I believe it was a Warriors game. I'm a big Warriors fan, and they were sitting right. They were sitting next to each other, and they were sitting by a white woman. I think Beyonce was in between Jay Z and this woman, and the woman is her husband owns the fucking team, and apparently she just leaned over to ask Jay Z if he wanted a drink because you know they're billionaires and they can all afford drinks, and there was a snapshot of it, and the Beehive acted like a wasp flew in their nest. Those, they went crazy. They were, they were threatening this woman's life. All this bitch was doing was offering Jay-Z a drink because they were her guests. You know, Beyonce, and Beyonce has to come out. Beyonce's publicist has to come out and say, guys, calm down. No, no, it's okay. They're all friends. She wasn't dissing Beyonce. She was just asking Jay-Z if he, need, if he needed something. She was being a good host. See, I don't blame celebrities. I blame the crazy people. And there's a lot of crazy people in this country. Right. And, and I sometimes wonder, you know, of course, we all have, I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of Angelina Jolie. So I understand how people can be kind of enamored Did, by a didn't certain- you say, um, Didn't you say you wanted to sit next to her on the flight when I asked you that question when you were a guest on this show? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I know. like, I, that's one day. But, um, you guys, but you guys, I- You and all her kids could have a football team. Yeah. <laughs> she, but you know, it's like it would be nice if we could transition all of that kind of um, that energy, that um, that enamoring into like things that actually matter, right? Imagine if the beehive took up <laughs> world hunger. You know right, what I mean? What, imagine if the beehive was like, "Hey, every person of color, you need to go out and vote." 
Yeah. Instead of yeah. worrying about a crazy white woman who owns a basketball team asking her man if she wants a drink. I mean, yeah, it's like I don't get mad at these celebrities as much as I do about the fans or the the crazy people who think that they're friends with these people. And sure, yes, I do that once in a while too. But <laughs> you know, I'm not uh, you know, I I'm not the one who gets so crazy I'm threatening people's lives. I just think that we're as a society, we're too focused on celebrities and not on the main issues of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and maybe that's something that just comes with, I would like to think it comes with age, but I don't know. I feel like it's cult, it's culture. It's not really tied to age. I think it's culture, you know, because you see the same fanaticism with sports players and, um, um, I mean, just, just almost anything. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's it's the team mentality. Human beings, you know, our brains have not developed enough. You know, society and technology have have developed way quicker than our brains. We still have those caveman brains. That's why we can't handle all this that technology's throwing at us. Technology's evolving quicker than we are. Like we're still mm -hmm. uh, we're still, you know, we still jump up out of bed when we hear a sound in our house because we're expecting a Tyrannosaurus Rex to come and eat us. Well, that would be more that, Hey, listen, now I'm starting to talk like a creationist because they believe <laughs> dinosaurs and children played in the garden of Eden. But you know what I mean? Right. Like, we still have that brain of, Oh my God, I'm on alert. I'm on alert. And really we're, we're not running from saber tooth tigers anymore. Um, yeah. So it's, it's too much. All this, this, social media and the news and you know how I'm sitting in Denver, but I fucking know what's happening all the way around the world at any moment of the day. My brain, our brains are not equipped for that. Mm -hmm. And we go crazy. You know, it's, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before. Everyone's like, Oh, we're the world is the worst it's ever been. Actually it's not. Actually, crime is down. Our country, if it wasn't for the current administration, would probably be doing okay. It's that the same shit's happening now that was happening decades ago. It's just that in 1950, you didn't know every person that was murdered today. Right. You knew what happened in your community. So it's like... Oh, little Billy got hit by a car or something or whatever the example is. But today it's that times a millions because now we can just get on our phones and find out every horrible thing that's happening at any moment. And like I said, we're not, we are not, our brains are not set up for that. So it causes us to be the way we are. Mm -hmm. If that yeah. makes any sense, I'm rambling. Now. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. There's a whole there's a great book I read in college called The Culture of Fear, and it talks about the 24-hour news cycle and the kind of, you know, awareness at any moment that we have now about anything and how that creates in your mind this culture of fear that would not exist if you weren't constantly exposed to every breaking news, this breaking news that we are being told this. You know, it's like you're, it's almost like uh, how do you even teach humans to navigate that world, you know? It's just, Quite, right, quite difficult. Be, right, because you're on the news and you're watching and it's like, this thing happened, this thing happened, this thing happened, this thing happened. And then you walk away from the news and you're like, I shouldn't even go outside because every bad thing's going to happen. But really, you're just getting all, too much information at once. And, mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're personalizing it, right? I think that's yes. like, 
the thing that Chinamatsu, right? Like, is the is like you know how when someone says to you, "Oh, I think he's good looking. I think she's good looking." I, I like find, sometimes I find myself the first like reaction to that is, "Do I think they're good looking?" But the thing is, really, I, it's not about me. It's about what that person's experience is with this, this third person they're talking about, right? So how I feel shouldn't matter. It's just that that person is saying, "Hey, Joe, I think uh, I think Matt's good looking," and then you know you can listen to that without trying to immediately understand how you feel. I think that's what we do with the news. This, a bomb went off in um, wherever. Oh my God, could that happen here? You know, immediately you personalize it and you don't need to because it's not, it's not happening to you. Well, and also I think we live in a world where people, you know, how do I say this? I was just talking about this this morning. How I said to Matt, you know, people should have to take a, a, a test to be able to go on social media. And if you are a conspiracy theorist person, you should not be allowed on social media. That should be a rule. Like if you believe in conspiracies like Sandy Hook Elementary School didn't happen and it was just a made up thing when all these parents are still mourning the loss of their children, you're a danger to society and you shouldn't be allowed on social media. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm very exactly. I'm very anti-conspiracy theories and I've really thought about having somebody come on the podcast who thinks the earth is flat but I am not going to invite that person on because I know it would not end well and you know <laughs> it would last about 10 minutes until I was like you're a fucking idiot and then I hung up the call. So I have not grown <laughs> I have not grown as a podcaster long enough. Maybe by maybe by episode two hundred I can do that, but at episode, yeah, I feel like maybe your husband would be would would not be have the calm and presence of mind to to like have a conversation with someone about that. Well, is he, he more? No, he doesn't talk to ignorant people really. Oh, okay, all right. So the moment you say the Earth is flat, he's like, yeah. So I'm gonna go. <laughs> he's out the door. He's like, yeah, because I read I read somewhere that it's okay to call out people like that because so when somebody comes to you and says the earth is flat you shouldn't even debate with them because what they're doing is they're lying to you and you should never debate someone who's lying because you're never going to get anywhere mm -hmm. so you know there is enough facts in the world to prove that the earth isn't flat so if somebody comes to you and says yeah the earth's flat i'm going to walk away i'm not even going to in i'm not even going to engage in a conversation with you because you're lying to me yourself whatever um now if you come to me and say i believe there's a god all right i could tolerate that a little bit more because we don't know there could be there could be i'm an atheist but there could be there could be um but we know that the earth is not flat. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that you're right. You get, you, once you open that door of the conversation, you've like given validity to something that is, you know, obviously not true and should not be perpetuated. Right. Right. So I'm, I don't want to have somebody on my show. Who's like, yes, chemtrails are real. And the airplanes are poisoning the planet because first of all, if that were true, Flight attendants and pilots. Well, flight attendants and pilots would know, and we can't keep a secret for shit. <laughs> okay, let me tell you: if that was for real, that shit would be known in a nanosecond because we don't keep a secret. We do you miss it at all, Joe? We call we call shit out constantly. Do I miss what? 
poisoning you people. Flying po- at all? Oh, poisoning, no. poisoning people on a daily basis. Yes. No. Um, <laughs> do I, now that's, that's an interesting conversation. That's an interesting question because do I miss flying? Yes. Do I miss being uh-huh. a flight attendant? Not so much. Do I miss the airline industry? Fuck them. <laughs> so you see there's different levels to my, how yes. my thoughts are on that. When you say flying, you mean as a passenger, passenger experience, getting from A to B, tra- like traveling, seeing different places. You miss Yes, that. I miss being okay. able to. And now that I can fly free forever, I miss going to the airport and having the idea of, hey, I'm just going to go do whatever I want. Um, the only thing I miss about being a flight attendant is laughing with my crew in the back mm. of the airplane and obtaining. See, I was one of those weird flight attendants that like. You'd walk on and flight attendant would say, God, I hope that, you know, my coworker would say, God, I hope this is an easy day. I hope nothing happens. And I'm the guy who's like, I hope everything happens, but not nobody dies. You were, you were there for the drama because that, for the excitement. that's what writes books. Yeah, sure. Like sure. if we're, if we're going to ditch into the ocean, I hope it's my flight. I hope we get out though. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, listen, um, a couple moments ago, you said, well, you, this was just a moment ago, you referenced Matt. Mm-hmm. Okay, but if you go back to the very beginning of this interview, when I asked you the word association, and I brought up your husband, you said he saved my life. Now, I have a feeling oh, God. that I'm going to find out much more about that when I ask you this next question, okay. which is, take me back to the very beginning. All right, let's go all the way back to your childhood. Where were you born, Joe? I was born in St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut at like 11 in the morning on November 10th, 48 years ago. Wow. Nice. Okay. That's very specific. I love that you just have all of that like boom, 11 a.m. It was like 1141 if you want to be accurate. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't want to sound like I was so into myself. Hey, um, what is your first memory of life? My, my first memory of life. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ. No, (laughs) we were, I was raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic. Jesus was very important. Um, the first, my first memory in my first memory, not the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I can remember being four years old. We lived on this, my grandparents owned a three family house and these old people lived on the first floor. Their names were the Cassidy's. When I was born, they were 80 and they're probably still 80. I don't know how that works. And um, (laughs) my grandparents lived on the second floor. And then on the third floor, they had renovated the attic to turn it into an apartment for my mother and I, because um, I was born to a single mom. So, um, I can remember being four years old. My mom would be at work and I was in my grandmother's house and the living room faced the front of the street. And then the kitchen was in the backyard, if that makes any sense. Like the -hmm. kitchen was in the back of the house. And I can remember I would look out the window and there was a, there was always a taxi parked. I shouldn't say always, but though I can remember a taxi being parked outside and my mom on the phone with my grandmother, my mom calling my grandmother from her work saying, Joe's father's out there. Don't let 
him go outside and play. I don't want him to see Joe. So I can remember having this vision of a taxi outside, me being four years old, but not being able to see who is in the taxi, not really know what's going on, but know that later on, under, put the puzzle together, that it was my biological father out there. Mm. And what did... Were you close with your grandparents? Did they effectively raise you alongside your mom? They, um, my, you know, my grandparents are the reason I'm probably not dead or a meth addict or a prostitute somewhere. Um, my grandmother, more than anyone, sh showed me love. She was the only person who loved me unconditionally. Mm. Yeah, she was the she she's the constant in my childhood of, you know, the love, you know, the normal, the love that you should receive from, you know, a sibling or a parent, something like that. Yeah. What was her name? Her name was Lorette. Lorette Emerence. Um, what was her maiden? Labonte. All French people. That was her. That was okay. her maiden name. Yeah. She. Um. She wanted to adopt me. So my mom, she, um, my mom had me at 26. She was still in party mode and she didn't really want a baby. You know, she almost had an, you know, my biological father wanted her to have an abortion. She said, no, thank God. It's the only thing she did right. And, um, <laughs> seriously, it's the only fucking thing the woman did in her enti entire, like she lived to be 56. The only thing she did right was not abort me. I'll and I, and you think it's funny, but, or you, it sounds like a joke, but it's honestly the truth. And, um, she would always go out, she would work and then she'd go out and it was this constant. And my grandmother was raising me. And so at one point, my grandmother, she came, Irene, that was my mom's name. She came home and my grandmother said, I would like to adopt Joe because my grandmother had, had two like miscarriages later in life. Cause her and my, um, my grandfather, who was my mom's stepdad, tried when they got married, they tried to have kids and they never could. So here she's raising her grandson, basically. And she said, I would like to adopt Joseph. And my mom's like, you're not fucking adopting my kid. And my grandmother said, well, then start raising him. And that was the thing. That was the shift of then instead of me being at home with my grandmother, I was now just brought to the bar and hung out at the bar with Irene while she got hammered. What did your mom look like? She's a brunette. She looks a lot like me, but a heavy smoker. And like, she would drink like 12, a 12 pack a day. I would say she was a two pack smoker a day. So when she passed away at 56, she looked like she was 80, unfortunately. Um, but okay. she, in her younger years in the fifties and in the sixties, I think it was the happiest she was. Like I have photos of her from the sixties where she was happy and content. Um, and then once she had me, it just seemed like her life was a mess. <laughs> what did she do for work? Lots of different things. You know, she never graduated high school. She dropped out of high school in the ninth grade because she didn't like all the black kids she went to school with. So, okay. yeah. Um, so she, um, she went to Hartford High School and she quit. And she just had odd, like she was a, a cashier when I was a baby. Then when she married, when she met and married my adopted father, Melvin, she stopped working. So then she had a long period of time where she didn't work. 
And then when we ran away to Florida, her and I, my grandparents, when we escaped Melvin and ran away to Florida, she was a housekeeper um, until she died. Hmm. Okay. Um, so interesting. I did, so much I didn't know. What? Um, how old were you when Melvin came into the picture? So when um, Melvin came into the picture, I was about four or five years old. Um, Do you have a memory of the very first time you met him? Or I have memories. Um, there was this bar in Hartford, Connecticut called the Silver Dollar Bar. It was on Zion Street in downtown Hartford, and that was my mom's hangout. And um, she met him there, and he lived in the uh, apartment behind the bar. I'm telling you, you couldn't write this shit if it wasn't for real. And right. um, she started dating him, and that's how that happened. And then he moved in very quickly, and I was told to call him dad right away. Like, I think on the second date, it was like, this is your dad. Because my mom's whole, my mom's entire focus was Joe needs a father. She just didn't realize you should do a little investigating on who you're going to bring in as the father. <laughs> That bitch. She made the <laughs> no. worst fucking decisions. But go ahead. What when Melvin? You said he moved in, correct? That's what you just said. He yeah, moved yeah. into your he, home. He moved what? in. We lived in that uh, attic apartment above my grandparents, uh -huh. and he moved in with us there um, very, very, very quickly. How did your grandparents react to that? I mean, it sounds like your grandmother was like, get your shit together to your mom. And instead of getting your shit together, she brings a man home to live with you and says, call him dad. And I have to imagine that didn't play out well. You know, my, or, gran my grandparents weren't very confrontational people. They kind of, you know, it was kind of one of those situations where they really took care of my mom, but she was very disrespectful and you know, she loved her mother, but she would also tell her mother, like, stay out of my fucking business. Um, her mm. and my, her and um, my uh, my grandfather, I didn't know my mom's biological father. So my grandparent, my grandmother, my mom's mother had divorced my mom's biological father, I think, when my mom was like 10 because he was an alcoholic. And then okay. my grandmother met her next husband, Victor, who was my mom's stepdad, but was my grandfather because I didn't know anyone else. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So he grew up basically in your eyes as your grandfather. Yeah, he was my Pepe, and that's how that was. And, okay. um, and my mom really, my mom was so fucking weird because this man basically took care of her like she was his own daughter, but she was so disrespectful to him. It's a very bad, yeah, it's not cool. What is, you're now in the home, Melvin's living with you, and this is where it gets, it's going to get, you know, to me, I have, I just want to tell everyone that's listening that last night, you know, you provided me with a copy of a letter that you wrote to yourself as an 11 year old. And Joe, it just really broke my heart, honestly. It's just, it's very, very, very sad. And, you know, this is really ultimately, uh, even though I forced you to talk politics and race relations earlier. I know. Why, we came here to why are you making me do that? But go ahead. <laughs> this is ultimately what we're here to talk about. So this is a, this will, is going to be this is going to be a two part podcast episode. By the way, <laughs> yeah, I made because I, I, I took an hour. Um, okay, if you're willing, and I think you are, who is who? Not who, because we know who Melvin was. 
what are your first memories of Melvin and the horrible situation that you then went through for many years? Oh. God, I should, you know, you were, you said to me, have a drink. And I didn't even make one because my stomach's a little upset. Now I'm going to have the shits for the rest of the week. Um, <laughs> so the first memory I have of Melvin is I was probably four, four or five years old. It was very early on when he moved in. So we're talking like 77. And, um, my mom would go out with her best friends all the time. She was always going out. It was almost like she was looking for a babysitter. So I was in bed and my bedroom in this apartment, you had to walk through, there was like a, you walked in and there was the kitchen, then there was a long hallway and then the living room was off to one end. And then you had to go through my bedroom to get to the master bedroom. It was a really weird layout, but I was laying in my okay. room and Melvin, my mom was out and Melvin was on the sofa. And he called me into his, he called me like Joe. They didn't call, they didn't call me Joey or anything. It was either Joe or Joseph. So I went in there and I'm like, Hey dad. Cause you know, now I'm, he immediately is like, hi, this is my new boyfriend. He's your dad. So I'm like, Hey dad. Right. And um, I was sitting next to him on the sofa and he was laying down and the TV was on and the room was dark. And I, I was sitting like, he was up against the back of the sofa and I was sitting kind of like right where his, his stomach was mm -hmm. and he started rubbing my leg and he told me that he was going to teach me what it meant to be a man. Mm. So I got scared and I jumped up and I ran downstairs to my grandparents' house. And I remember telling my grandmother something bad. I, I, I couldn't say the words. I was like four or five. I don't know. He touched my leg. He's going to whatever. So Irene comes home and she's, hammered. You know, back in the seventies, people drank and drove no seatbelt. How I lived, I don't know. So, um, my grandmother's like something happened. And my mom asks me, I'm like, he touched me cause he, he was rubbing my leg. So my mom's like, I'll fucking kill him. So she goes upstairs and I'm downstairs. I'm crying to my grandmother and an hour goes by and Irene comes back and she goes, okay, everything's fine. And I can remember saying, what's what happened and she goes you misunderstood him he was teaching you how to be a man so i remember i remember my first thought of are you there did you hang up was that just too much already because if that's too much no, if just... that, honey if that's too much you're not ready for this <laughs> No, I'm ready. I just, yeah, you're it's not, very, you know, it's very hard, very hard to hear, you know? So, um, um, so we went back upstairs and I was told to apologize because I started problems, you know, apologize to your father. He was just trying to have a conversation with you. So I was like, Oh, okay. So that's my first memory of um, my, my first go-to memory of my relationship with Melvin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then how does this progress forward? You, did you, let me ask this first. Did you believe you, that, did you believe that you had misunderstood the situation and did you have enough trust in your mother at that very young age to think, Oh, she knows better than me. Of course she's older. She's my mom. Let me just go apologize. Did you feel that? Or do you still feel like something was wrong? Oh no, I thought I was wrong. I was like, Oh wow. Well, you know, when you're a child, the people you trust are the adults in your life. Mm -hmm. That's how that's, those are the first moments where you're learning how to trust people, where you live in a world where like, yeah, everyone's not going to fucking attack me and destroy me. 
Those are the first things. So yeah, it was just like, no, I guess I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Um, and it didn't take much. I would say, you know, of course, this is lost to memory, but the time frame, but it was a very short period of time before um, I had started school. And I came home, I used to walk to kindergarten. Maybe I was in the okay. maybe I was in the first grade now. Yeah, my school was like down the street. My mom taught me how to flick off the bikers, and then I was sent off on my own. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm not, okay. I'm not lying. Yeah, this is so. Um, I came home from school one day, and I went upstairs, and I walked in, and I didn't hear anything, so I didn't think anyone was home. And so I walked into my bedroom, and Melvin was laying in my bed naked, and that's the first time he raped me. So then after that, um, I told, I told Irene, um, you know, he touched me, you know, when you're that young, you really don't know how to put words together. And, you know, if it would have been a normal family, right. If it would have been a normal mother who actually cared about her child and the safety of her child, she would have probably talked that child to a therapist or a counselor. And then they would have gave a doll to the child. And then the, Child would have pointed, he touched me here, here, and here, and that. But, you know, back then it was not like that. So she kicked him out, though. And he was gone for, I would say, a couple of days. And then I came home from school one day, and he was sitting at the table. And they told me it was a misunderstanding. And that, again, he was just trying to show me that he loves me and that I took it wrong. So then he was back in our life. Were your grandparents attuned to any of this? I mean, this is basically happening above their home, correct? This is happening upstairs. You know, I don't know if they actually understood the the depth of the abuse that was occurring. I think they were more heavily on the... Um, they're alcoholics, they're loud, they're abusive, but... We're not going to get involved. It was a very different time in the 70s. If that was today, you know, it would be a different situation. But in the 70s, a lot, you know, it was hush, hush, don't talk about it. We're just going to act like this is didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so he comes back. He, your mother has, who knows, right? You don't know. You don't know if she's now recognizing that this is, in fact, true, but she's still going to choose to be with this man or... She is yet again believing that you are wrong, um, but she invites him back to the home nonetheless. Yes. He what happens back. next? Well, then the molest, then then the rape just, that's it. Then I'm just molested for, from like about four or five till I'm like 15. Because so you're how old? Four or five to what? Till I was about 14 or 15. It was about a decade. 14. Yeah. Because um, it, it lasted until I was old enough to fight back physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. During any of these times, I mean, the progression of a, I would imagine, right, from a four year old to a seven year old to a 10 year old to then a 13 year old, your awareness of the world has changed significantly, even aside from this um, huge abuse. Are there moments when you look back at the years going by and your understanding of what was going on did it change in any way 
Well, when I, yeah, you know, when I was younger, like when I was really young, four or five, um, I did everything I could. I did what I thought what you're supposed to do. I feel uncomfortable. Somebody did something to me. Somebody's hurting me. I'm telling the people in my life who are supposed to protect me. Once those people who are supposed to protect you do not protect you, you almost fall into this world of my abuser is the one protecting me. Mm-hmm. Because no one else seems to be, no one else seems to care about me because I'm telling all these people what's happened. No one seems to give a fuck. So then the, the, the child pedophile, the molester, the rapist is telling me, this is how I'm showing you that I love you. And if you ever tell anyone again, you know, I'm going to have to leave. And then you've broken up the family and you're not going to have a dad and your mom's not going to have a mom. And then she's not going to love you anymore. So he very much groomed you. Oh, of course. You know, and that's what pedophiles do to the, to their victims. They groom them to get to the point where, you know, there's, you know, I, I can't speak for other people that were molested or raped or anything like that. I can only speak from my perspective. And I just know at, at some point when I was growing up going through this, I remember thinking, and I was probably like eight and I just remember thinking this is wrong. And I know this is wrong. So I'm very happy that something in my brain always told me this isn't your fault. You know, you've just got to survive this. If you can just survive this, you're going to be okay. So a lot Mm. of it was just me being a very young, young child, reminding myself, this isn't going to last forever. You're going to get away one day. And hopefully, you know, bad, you know, you're not going to be fucked up too much. But I always knew something in my brain told me that this was wrong. Uh, as this is happening, and this and there's a number of questions as I sat last sat down last night to think about this that I have that I am honestly hesitant to ask you, but I'm going to ask you oh, because yeah. I feel like I yeah, if I have the question, it probably means someone who's listening has that question. Okay. Yeah. So, um, as this is all happening, is there any time in which you feel like there is something that you like about Melvin in terms of a quality that one might like about a parent? You know, is he, is he just this absolutely horrible guy who's also abusing you? Or is he, you know, kind of a fun guy who's fun to hang out with sometimes who's also abusing you? Oh, um, no, horrible human being who was also abusing me. Yeah. Um, Alcoholic, abusive, you know, he, he was the kind of guy when I was like, I would say 13 or 14. He was, um, he had beat up my mom and then he was coming after me. And I can remember being in the living room and he would always get me in the corner and I would put my arm up, you know, because your, your reflux when somebody's attacking you is you put your arms up. Right. And I had my arms up in the corner. I actually, while I'm talking, I'm actually doing it while I'm sitting in my chair. I have my arms up and, um, he said, put your fucking arms down. I'm not going to hit you. And I put my arm down and he hit me, duh. And um, he backhanded me and ripped my lip with his ring. What? So I remember at that point saying, I, I can't trust people anymore. And, I mean, we're, okay, you said that you're 13 or 14 at this time. Yeah. Um, what, so what, you, do you go to your mother anymore or is that just long gone? Is that like a train that has left the station? You were well, not even like... 
look what he did to me, mom. You can see it. You know, you can well, she's see my face. Well, she's standing there. So okay. she's there. But but she can't do anything because you have to remember she has zero self-esteem. She does not love herself. She's as broken as a fucking China doll in a bear shop. Like she's just she's 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 she cannot save herself. So she can't save me. So um so yeah. So she knew she knew all about the physical abuse. And the verbal abuse, because she was kind of going through it, too. He broke her ankle because um, he pushed her so hard. She broke her ankle. And so, yeah, no, she was going, she was trying to survive like me. If You know, I'm, I'm trying, I don't want to defend her. But at the end of the day, I mean, she did some horrible things and she was blind to truth. But, I mean, she was just trying to survive this, too. The next question I have comes from, um, it, people may know I'm an air traffic controller and what I have found over a decade working as a controller is that there are a number of a, a very large number of female controllers have been sexually abused it's something I didn't know going into the profession why would I and then as the years went on people would quietly come to me and tell me their stories and you know I have absolutely cried in the middle of uh, walking down the hallways of DCA the Washington airport listening to somebody tell me this story and just just not being able to even really imagine. One of the women that went through this told me that it was a situation where her, her nanny, a female nanny, come over after school. She, she had a single mother who was working. The nanny started bringing her boyfriend over. The boyfriend over the course of many years would abuse her. She told me that around the time that she was a teenager, while she recognized she was being abused, Sexually, it also felt good, and that made it really, really a very complicated situation in her head. I hate to even ask this question, but my question was, was there ever a time where those two things were, were intersecting and that you were like your body now having gone through, you know, puberty was like reacting to potentially, you know, sexual whatever, but knowing that it was absolutely uh, horrendous. Oh, absolutely. Um, you have to imagine you're like a 12 year old, 11 or 12 or 13 year old. And, you know, your body's going through all the changes that it goes through, even if you're not being molested. Right. You know, so imagine mm -hmm. you're going through, you know, you're going through your typical hormonal teenage angst, but then you're also gay, which is a problem in that time. Mm -hmm. And then you're being raped by your father. So, and I like to use the term raped because it's, it's what it is, you know, molestation, you know, the word molest, I don't think it has, it's not as exclamation as rape. I like to say the word rape because I want people to understand what it really fucking was. Like, oh, mm -hmm. he molested me. What is that? What did he, no, no, he raped you. So, um, I, I'm, you're going through all these things and somebody's blowing you. Yes, it feels good. It's normal to think like, but you're also struggling to say, I know this is wrong, but it feels good right now. Mm -hmm. So it lends to you to spend a lot of years in therapy after. So, yeah. Right. I have to imagine there's a lot to dissect there. What, how old are you when you realize you're gay? Oh my God. Um, I, I remember being in the second grade and I thought my <laughs> elementary coach was hot. 
Yeah, okay. His name was his name was Coach Rodriguez. Always had a thing for the Puerto Ricans. I don't know why. <laughs> Even in elementary school in Connecticut. But um I I remember that being like, oh, that's weird. But I remember being gay gay, like knowing I was gay probably when I was like 14 or 13. Because there was a was boy, there ever a boy in the neighborhood I liked. There was a boy in the neighborhood you liked. Was there ever a time when you confuse you in your mind were confused that potentially the reason that you were feeling sexual attracted to men was because you had been raped by a man since you were four. I don't, I've never put those two and two together. Um, I, I know that that can happen. I, you know, I've read articles where that happens um, with women. I think sometimes women who get, raped by um, a male figure, male family figure, tend to sometimes distance themselves from men so much they end up becoming either bisexual or lesbians. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, I, I personally believe that I was born gay. Um, mm -hmm. And it just so happens that I am gay because there's a lot of men who are molested or raped who are straight. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't, you know, all these guys that were raped by their priests in the sixties, seventies, they're most of the time they're heterosexual. So I don't think mm -hmm. I, you know, it's easy. It's easy for people who don't understand this type of thing that happens. You know, it, it's easy for somebody who might not like gay people or understand the gay world to say, Oh, well he was molested. So yeah, he's turned out to be a homosexual, but that's just because they don't understand the entire nuance of how all this works. And so, no, I don't think, I don't think um, being molested turned me gay. I don't think it had anything to do with it. I just think that I unfortunately was raped by someone and I was a gay kid. Right. And just to be clear, I definitely don't think that I was just wondering if it, in your, in your head, as you were like, Oh, I'm attracted to men. If you as a kid, not now ever were like, I wonder if this is because I've had a lifetime. I mean, basically since your memories start of having this man forced upon me. So you've answered the question and you know, that's very much, I mean, absolutely. I don't think it has anything to do with your sexual orientation, you know? Yeah. Cause my, um, my husband wasn't raped and he's gay. So I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it that has nothing. I don't believe that has anything. To do no, with no, no. And, but it's so, I'm glad you asked that question because that has been asked many times over my couple, three or four or five decades, however long I've been alive now. Um, that is a question like, do you think that made you gay? And I'm like, well, you know, yes, you didn't get an education. That's why you're stupid. But this has nothing to do with why I turned out to be gay. right. Yeah, two, right. Two different things. What? Um, when is the last time that Melvin abused you? You know, I don't remember the exact experience. Um, I remember all the places he did molest me, but I don't remember the last experience because there's this little blank spot in my brain where the relationship went from where he would rape me to when it got very physical and violent. Mm -hmm. right. I, um, I, when I was like 13, I had this entire plan set up where I was going to kill him and get away with it. And when I think about that right now, I think, God, that sounds so sad. A 13-year-old, they should be excited about finishing the eighth grade and, oh, this and that, and, oh, I got to study. And I was sitting in my room planning how I was going to murder my father. 
Had you shared that with any friends or anybody that you felt you could trust? No, not at the point. No, not at the point. I would just, and I was so convinced I was going to do it that I would walk myself through it. Like I had an entire plan. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Would you mind sharing? Oh yeah. I don't give a fuck. So, um, yeah, I had this plan, you know, when I was like 13, it was getting to the point where there was physical violence, there was still sexual violence. And I think I was getting, you know, I was starting to become an adult. Well, I'm 13, but you know, I'm starting to like, I can't do this shit anymore. And I would plan run away. I was going to run away first. And then I only got like four blocks away on my bike. And I was like, yeah, I don't know how far I think I'm pedaling. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna live in a dumpster. Like I was like, anything is better than this. So then I thought, well, I can't do that. I can't go live in a dumpster. Do you know how I'll smell? So let me kill him. And I say this as a joke, you know, cause I have to make things funny and that's how I cope with them. But I was like, let me kill him. I'm going to kill him. So I came up with this plan where Irene would be gone. She was going to be gone out, whatever she does, goes out and gets drunk. He would be drunk passed out in the bedroom because that's what he does. So I was going to sneak in the back screen door. I was going to cut the screen door. I was going to take a knife and I was going to bludgeon him to death, not even think about it. And then I was going to take the knife and I was going to go way out into um, right by the old high school, East Hartford High School. There was a pond. It was called PNF, the Police and Firefighters Pond. We used mm-hmm. to go out there when we were kids. And I was going to throw the knife in the pond and then I was going to go play with my friends. And then I was going to come home and I was going to find Melvin bludgeoned to death. And the screen door, somebody broke in. There's no weapon. Oh, my God. And then my mother and I are going to be free and everything's going to be good and normal. Because in my mind, I thought once Melvin's gone, Irene's going to be a normal person because the only reason she's this crazy and so sad and depressed. And, you know, she tried to commit suicide twice. Um, that, well, once he's gone, things will be normal. And then of course, once we did run away to Florida, I realized, Oh no, you're just fucked up. It didn't matter who you were married to. So take me through the decision-making process, not to murder him. And then, and then what led to you and your mother escaping? So, well, you know, I'd like to say now that I'm glad I didn't murder him because I, I'm glad I did not. But up until like my mid 20s, I would think about it and I would think I should have. Because after we left, he married another woman who had three kids. And that's kind of how the story came out where I confessed to the world that I was molested. But um, I just, you know. I, I don't, I just couldn't go through with it. I think it was just a fantasy in my head that mm-hmm. I would tell myself, like I would talk about it when I was going to school. I had a part-time job at a furniture store, um, polishing brass, which kind of makes me think, which kind of sounds like masturbating people, which is funny. But um, yeah, and I would sit there polishing this brass thinking about, oh, this is going to be good. No one's ever going to figure out it was me. And even if they do, I'll tell them I was being molested. And what are they going to do? Put me in prison? Um, But this was my mentality at like 13. And then in my 20s, I was like, I should have done it. But now I can look back and say, well, I'm glad I didn't do that. Because 
that would have just screwed up my life forever because I would have gone into juvenile detention and then Lord knows how I would have came out of that. So right. for my own well-being, and I'm sorry that he went on to molest other kids because if I would have killed him, he wouldn't have done that. But at the end of the day, I had to make sure that I didn't end up any more fucked up than the path that these people had set me on. So what happens, you decide not to do this, right? You're, you said you're working at this furniture store. You just, you're fantasizing about it. You decide at some point that you're not going to do this, but instead you're going to run away. Is that something that's premeditated or is that something that's a result of one final giant domestic uh, violence situation? So, so when I moved to Florida, so my grandparents, you know, like I had said, my grandmother was like the saving grace of my childhood. And mm -hmm. they would, my grandfather was a truck driver and they would go dry that she would go on with on trips with him. And at this point now, my mother, myself and Melvin have moved out of their house and we're living in a condo in East Hartford, Connecticut. So we live across the river from them. So I don't see them as much, but they, my grandfather would go on long truck trips and my grandmother would go with her and they would always bring me back something because I was the youngest grandchild and I was kind of like their baby. So mm -hmm. they called and they said, we're home from our trip. We brought you stuff. And I was like, okay, they had gone to Florida. I thought they had gone to Florida to, um, for work. So when I get to their house, I'm 15 and it's April, 1988. No, it's February, 1988. I'm 15 and I get in their house and I'm there for like the spending the night. And my grandfather and my grandmother, like, sit down, we have something big to tell you. We've bought a house in Kissimmee, Florida, and we're moving. And at that moment, I feel like my entire life is rapidly unfolding and I'm just going to die at that moment. Because they are your, you love them and you don't want them to leave you. They're the only reason in my mind at the time that I think that I'm, I'm alive and I'm a normal person. Cause I think if I don't have them, I'm just going to die. I'm going to, I can't live without knowing that they're right here close by. Mm -hmm. So I immediately go into, well, I guess I have to move to Florida. So I don't say this to anyone. And at this point, things have gotten extremely violent in my home life. Like this is the period now where Melvin and I are fist fighting. We, I, one time I punched him and he fell to the floor and I grabbed a machete or a, an, not a machete. What is one of those butcher knives? Mm -hmm. What are those? And I was kneeling on his neck. That is not where I'm going with this, but I remember kneeling on his neck and I was going to stab him with this knife. And I remember Irene sitting at the table with her broken ankle screaming, Joe, don't do it. So at that point, I was like, this, something's, somebody's going to die. So I started saying, all right, I'm going to move to Florida. So I talked to my grandparents. I said, things are very, and now remember, I still haven't admitted to the world that I'm being raped by this man. And at this point, that's not even happening really anymore because it's just so violent. So he's not trying to, to rape you anymore because you're able to fight him off. Yes. And I woke and, and, and the, um, the manipulation washed away and all the, all the grooming he had done flushed down the toilet. And I was just like, it's me and you motherfucker. And one of us are going to die. Mm. So I come up with this plan. I'm like, I'm going to run away to Florida with my grandparents. So I, I say to them, Hey, 
I want to come and live with you. And they're like, well, if it's okay with your parents, I was like, yeah, fuck them. Come and live with you. So I sit Irene down and at this point I'm working, when this is happening, I'm working at a small convenience store called the grocery barn. <laughs> and, um, I say to Irene, I'm going to move. I'm going to, I'm going to tell Melvin I'm going to Florida for the summer, but I'm never coming back. And she okay. says, and she says, okay. That's it. <laughs> yep. Okay. All right. That, yeah. I'm, uh, and I said, do you, would, would you like to come with me? She goes, I'm not leaving my husband. All right. So at this point I had about four. So at this point it's like February, they're leaving in April, but I still have to okay. finish my sophomore year in school. So I have this plan. I'm going to go in July and we're keeping it a secret from, we don't even, I haven't even told Melvin I'm going for the summer, but then like around April or May, I'm like, I'm going to go visit Meme and Pepe for the summer. And he's like, yeah, I don't give a fuck what you do, but he really does. So he overhears one day, well, he notices I'm starting to pack up my bedroom. Things are not like I'm slowly packing up my bedroom and he's like, and I'm hiding things in the closet and I'm being very, and finally the truth comes out and he's like, what's going on? And my mother says, Joe's moving to Florida and he's not coming back. And Melvin, did you feel betrayed by her? Um, no. Cause at that point I was like, fuck. Yeah. I don't give a fuck. I was, because at that point I was a very bad teenager. Because you have to remember, I'm being raped for a decade. I'm not going to be the most well-behaved, um, right. respectful kid. I'm the kid who was but like, fuck you, Irene, eat a dick. Like I was a, I would punch my kid if he ever talked to me like that. But hopefully I wouldn't have put him through that. So he says to Irene, he says, um, you might as well go too, because without Joe, there's no family. Wow. So um, with my $400, I bought us two Greyhound bus tickets. And we, a friend that lived across the street helped me take all of my boxes. My mom didn't bring anything. She brought, she literally brought the clothes on her back. I had, my ass had been preparing because you weren't going to take away my fucking Garfield blanket and shit. I was packing all my shit. So we, a friend of mine and I moved it and brought it to the storage unit where my grandparents' stuff was. And then the company that my grandfather had retired from, the trucking company, they were moving his stuff down there. So they just easily threw my stuff on the truck, right? So mm -hmm. they go down in April and their stuff is still up in Connecticut. And then my mom and I moved in July and we landed in, well, landed, but the bus pulled into Orlando, the Greyhound bus pulled into Orlando on July 17th 1988 and it was my grandfather's 61st birthday now he was born in 1919 hey google what's 1919 minus 1988 listen i'm not very good with math 69 oh god he was old as fuck so um so yeah <laughs> all right something like that so and that's how we escaped melvin how did it feel to arrive in Florida with your mom, knowing that you were never going to see him again? Or did you feel like he was going to make a reappearance somehow? Well, I did see him again. But oh. at that moment, I am 15. And all I can think of is I'm going to be able to go to school and not worry about having to fist fight my adult father. Right. Yeah. 
So okay, yeah. so you guys move in. You, you you live with your grandparents, or you live your mom find your own place. Yeah, no, we lived with my grandparents um, for my junior year, and then Irene had saved up enough money, and we moved into our own apartment in like the summer of 1989. And you were how old then? I was 16. your senior year. I was 16. You were, oh, yeah. Okay, so you're okay. Yeah. All right, so. How does it feel? This new life you've got this, this uh, you know, this person who has been raping you for a decade, and you are now free, and your plan has come to fruition. You're in Florida. You're living with your grandparents. And how does it feel? Um, it feels okay, but you have to also remember now I'm really in the middle of puberty, and I'm a gay kid, so right. I didn't have much time to take a breath. <laughs> I didn't have much time to think, ah, I can just relax. Now it was, uh, why are all my friends have girlfriends and I look weird? Something's got, I got to do something. Mm. Yeah. So it was, I easy, it was just this thing from, okay, that's over. Now I have to deal with this next thing, which is I'm a gay teenager in central Florida in 1989. When did you come out to your mother? <laughs> That's the best story I've ever have in the world. Um, my mother found out by accident um, when I was seventeen. She found. I out. can't wait. Oh, she <laughs> found. Okay, so I, I was. So there was this boy. It's always a boy. So my best friend, her name was Melissa, and um, she was dating this boy named Ruben, and I fell in love with Ruben. So. We were seniors, and I wrote him a love letter. <laughs> and I remember writing, please don't tell anyone, but I'm, and I put three dashes. Okay. And I gave it to him. And because at 16, I couldn't say that I was gay. It's such a weird thing. And I don't know if you remember this or if this happened to you, but saying the words, even though in my mind I knew I was gay, saying the words I am gay was was the most for like they couldn't come out of my mouth. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, because, you know, once you say it out loud, it's real and, and that's your path. So, yeah, I gave him this note. He read it. He told everyone. Um and then he gave me the note back. And then when I got home, I was crying and I crinkled up the note and I threw it in my wastebasket in my bedroom and I walked out. But what I didn't realize was it bounced off the rim and landed on the floor. And then when Irene came home, I was working. I had gone to my job at McDonald's and she came home from work and she found this letter and she read it. And then she went out and got hammered. So I come home. And no one's home. So I'm sitting on the floor, Indian style, playing Duck Hunt. Remember Nintendo's Duck Hunt? Yeah, yeah, of course. Playing Duck Hunt. <laughs> she stumbles in the house, which is not, it's not, unnor it's not un normal for her to come home drunk. I mean, that's just Irene. So she throws the letter on me at me and she goes, what's this fucking shit? And I'm like, oh, no. So I'm like, oh, it's just a phase. It's just a phase. She's like, I can't have a faggot for a son. I'd rather kill you. Well, and I said, well, you know, it's just a phase. I'm sure Irene, don't worry about it. So a couple weeks later, she gets drunk again and um, we get into a loud screaming match 
and she starts hitting me. She starts like punching my chest. You know, she's like, I can't have a fag for a son. And she's screaming, screaming. And I take her and I fling her across the fucking room. Like she's a rag doll and she slams into the closet and crumbles to the ground. So I think, Oh shit, that was bad. So mm-hmm. she gets back up and she says, I'm calling the cops and I will never forget this for the rest of my life. I'm smiling because I'm embarrassed, but also you do what you got to do when you're 16. And I remember saying, I dare you, 911, bitch. That's the number. Oh. Wow. You had a lot of, I mean, resentment toward her, right? I mean, it was everything. Like when you hear that, don't you just. Can't you, I'm 47 now. That's like 30 years ago, but can't you sense the anger just from the sentence? Yeah. Like, it's I, like a lifetime of yeah anger. I dared her. I was like, I fucking dare you. 911, bitch. That's how you call the cops. And she did. So they came. I remember it was a, it was a, a female, a black, it was a, a male and a female cop. And she was screaming, screaming. He hit me. He hit me. He hit me. And I was outside and they're like, do you have any place you can go? I'm like, well, I'm 17. What do you recommend? (laughs) You were over everyone. Right. And they're like, can you go to your grandparents' house? And she was still yelling while they're like figuring something out. And she's yelling. And I say, why don't you ask her why I hit her? As any, so then they're like, what's going on here? And she's like, he hit me. And I said, she doesn't want to fag for a son. Hmm. So I went and I stayed with my grandparents for a couple days. And then a friend of mine named Sherry was like, I just got an, I'm getting a new apartment. You can come sign the lease with me. And I was like, oh, this sounds great. I'm moving in with you. So I was 17 years old and I signed a lease. <laughs> And then the funny story about that is three months later when I left, the apartment complex is like, you signed this lease. I was like, bitch, I was 17. Bring me to court. So (laughs) I was underage, you idiots. So, yeah. So um, my mother and I had a very turbulent relationship up until I was probably – probably till I finished nursing school when I was about 24. And then, then I started becoming more of the adult. Did any of this time, once you guys have moved to Florida, you're now, you know what, graduating from uh, high school. Did you and her ever, ever talk about what had ha- gone on for the past decade? Or was it just like, nope, there's no reason to talk about this. We're just going to continue being horribly angry at each other over unspoken things. No, what happened was it was all out in the open by then. What happened was it was, I would say it was my first school year there. I was a junior. I can't remember. I think it was like November. So November of 1988. And um, I go to bed. It's like 10 p.m. And I'm in, we're in, living in my grandparents' house. And the phone rings. And then a few minutes later, my grandmother opens my bedroom door. And she says, the East Hartford Police Department's on the phone for you. So my mom is in the next room because her and I, our rooms right next door to each other. So I get up and I'm like, oh, Jesus. So I get up and I go to the kitchen phone and my mom picks up the other phone in her bedroom so she can listen in. So it's the East Harford Police Department and they're like, hi, this is Sergeant whoever, blah, blah, blah. Um, You know, your father has been arrested for, you know, inappropriate 
relations with a child. Can you please let us know if he's ever done anything sexual to you? And remind us all how old you are right now in this story. Well, I, I was 16. You're 16. Okay. Yeah. All right. And I just said, yes. I just said, yes. And they said, what did he do? And I said, he molested me. So they're like, thank you so much. We might need to contact you again for more information. He's been arrested. And the behind the scenes story of that is he had, he had right after my parents got divorced, he married, even before they were divorced, he found a new woman and she had two daughters and a son because pedophiles, they have to, it's like, it's like food for them. They have to have a child easily accessible. So he married the single mom with three kids. Dad's not in the picture. Perfect. That is the perfect setup for a pedophile. So right. um, apparently they were at a friend's house, him and the child. And the child was, the boy had to be like seven, seven or eight, six mm -hmm. or seven. The boy was sitting on his lap and Melvin was molest, like rubbing him and touching him inappropriately. And a friend of Melvin's who was drunk was like, Am I seeing this? This can't be right. So he went home and he told his wife and then they called the police. So the police came and they arrested Melvin. Um, and the sad part is all of that, he still got out, still got away with it, and then moved to back to Canada where he basically lived out the rest of his life and died like three years ago. But Oh, he did not serve time in... He no, did not serve no, time or no, anything. He got away with um, raping children. Do you think he fled to Canada to escape? Well, he went back to Canada because all his family knew he was a pedophile and they protected him. Okay, he was Canadian. Yes. Yes. So Okay, we're in Canada. Um, St. Jean's Richelieu, right outside of Montreal. Okay. Yeah. So I get off the phone with the police. Irene comes in and we're sitting at the kitchen table and she starts crying. And I remember looking at her and saying, don't you ever shed a tear because you knew this was happening. I didn't know this was happening. I said, denial is a terrible thing. You knew this was happening. You couldn't protect me because you couldn't protect yourself. Never shed a tear for me again. And at that- Are your grandparents there as well? My grandparents are there, but they're so old now you can't expect anything from them. Okay. They're not really, they're not investing in this situation. They're, they're kind of in the background. Yes. They're really, they're not sitting there saying, I knew this was happening. They're kind of just like my grandmother's doing puzzles. My grandfather's falling asleep on the sofa because they're old. Okay. So that was the turning point. That's when I became, um, that's, be, that's when I became an adult was that moment when I told Irene that, don't shed a tear for me because you're part of this too, bitch. Ha! She's dead now. I can call her a bitch. I don't have to worry about her calling me and yelling at me. <laughs> so, okay. This is, this, so now we're skipping. Now we just go slightly forward to when you guys had your big fight. The police are called. You move in with your friend. Was yes. that the last time you lived with your mother? No. Um, I moved back in um, because miraculously she became this woman who loved her gay son. Wow. I and, didn't expect that. Yeah. And she, yeah, she just one day realized I either can, you know, love my child or not. And 
she chose to try to love me as much as she could. Um, but her and I never had like a mother son relationship. You know, when I was four, I would pull her out of the bushes cause she was so drunk. So I was always mm-hmm. kind of the adult child of an alcoholic. Even when I was a child, right. I was always saving her. So, um, after that, our relationship became more like equals in the mm-hmm. sense where I'll give you an example. Like I bought a, in 2000, in 1993, I bought a brand new geo Metro. Okay. It was a big deal. I was 21. It was a very exciting moment. And I went to the house to show her and she said, that must be fucking nice. I'm still driving this piece of shit. So I remember saying, okay, goodbye, unless you can talk to me nicer, I'm leaving. So our relationship <laughs> became more of the, I will not tolerate your craziness anymore. So when she would get, mm-hmm. mani- she was very manipulative as I grew older, but I wouldn't tolerate it. So I would come visit her. And if she said something crazy, like, oh, it must, I would be like, Irene, you can either chat with me or I can leave. Those are your options today. Did you always call her Irene Joe, even from the time when you were a kid? Um, or I called her Irene to make her angry. Okay. Yeah. So it was mom. I always called her mom. Now as an adult, I call her Irene um, when I'm referring to her. I think I even do that in my books. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, when I was a kid, I would just say it because it would hurt her. And my goal was, I'm going to hurt you because that's all you've been doing to me. Hmm. So you move away. Okay. At some, at some point you're, you're gone. Now you're, you know, you guys have this, uh, this bet. I don't know. I'd say like an evolving relationship, right? Where she, you guys, you're, she's learning that you're, you're very much going to set the boundaries. At what point does this relationship, um, does it get better? Does it always have this complex kind of past that's, um, constantly coloring the present or what? It's always complex and it's never the relationship that you would imagine a child would have with their mother. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hurt. There's things that we'll never get through. Um, I always, I'm not going to say I hated her. Um, You know, in my twenties and in my teens, even in my thirties, um, I hated her. Now I feel bad for her because I have gotten to the point in my life where I can look back and I could say, you know, this was a really broken human being that really was trying to survive. She probably should not have ever had a child, but she did. Mm -hmm. Um, She should never have been a parent. That woman was, there's some people that should not be parents. She should have never had a child ever. And um, she, she did the best she could not wanting to even have a child. Like I'm shocked she didn't have an abortion because she would tell me when I was younger and growing up, like I should have had an abortion. Hmm. And I would tell her, well, you fucked that up. Now, if you kill me, you're going to jail. I mean, it, was she the way that she was because of her childhood, Joe? Or was it just she was provided with quite a good childhood and she just, you know, was not a person equipped to to be an adult? 
Um, her childhood was pretty messy. You know, her parents, so my grandmother Lorette and her biological father, her biological father was um, a very bad alcoholic. He actually died from, he died a month, he died October 10th, 1972, um, literally a month to the day before I was born. He, he was so drunk, he fell and fractured one of his ribs and it punctured his, um, like, one like his liver or his lung or something. And he died on the floor. Wow. Okay. Um, but he also was abusive. Um, these were very abusive people. Um, he was, he never liked my mother. He never liked his daughter because she was born first and he wanted a son first. Okay. Yeah, I know. Hard, hard to under, it, you know, these, you say these things and you say, yeah. okay. And when you're saying, okay, I can sense you're like, Jesus Christ, like this, when does it end? Um, but, and when she was a young girl, he threw her across the room and she landed in her, she bounced off the wall and landed on her crib, in her crib. So, and my grandmother, you know, these people were from, they were blue collar people from New England who were very religious. But if there's one thing that I've learned about religion is the most religious people are usually the ones who are doing the most damage. Well, right. I mean, I, they were very, you said they were a Catholic family earlier. Catholic. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge. Like, yeah. Like so Catholic, it makes my stomach upset. I mean, and then there's all this abuse going on and there's, I mean, it's just could not be less in line with, or, or, I mean, well, that's a whole other discussion. But, I mean, you know what I'm saying. I mean, you would imagine that none of this would all be going on an, under a family's roof who was was so devout. It's hard to understand in a way. No, it actually makes so much sense to me because what do Catholic priests do better than give first communions? <laughs> right. Oh, no. I had to go there. But, no, um, you know, in that time period, and like I said earlier, like back in the 70s, 80s, this was something that people didn't talk about. They swept it under the rug. They, they didn't want it, you know, Oh God, we don't want this. On, we don't want this type of thing seeping into our family. Um, but yeah, so my mom's biological dad was abusive to her. Um, physically. I don't know if he was sexually abused. I do think my mom was sexually abused, but she um, never admitted it to me. But mm -hmm. she definitely had a lot of the signs that would lead you to believe something happened to her when she was a kid. You know, it's so interesting, right? Because when someone goes through something, you you, you imagine that it's so traumatic that they're going to make sure it doesn't happen to someone else. And yet, here, I mean, especially their own child. And then here's a situation where it couldn't go more wrong, right? Yeah. What but, you went through. I, but you know what? I think, you know what? I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that I hope that Irene had, I hope her goal was to save me, to protect me, but she did not have the tools or the mental capacity or the strength to protect herself. So how can you protect someone else if you can't protect yourself? And I know, and I know that sounds like I'm making an excuse for her bad behavior, but I think I've had to tell myself that so that I don't spend the rest of my life hating her. Mm -hmm. I, I spend the rest of my life kind of having pity for her and 
having compassion for like to say instead of like fuck her. And yes, I know I talk shit about her all the fucking time, <laughs> but I have the right to do that. But down steep down inside, no matter how much anger I have or how frustrated or how hurt I am that my mom failed me because she failed me point blank. Um, there's a little bit of me that says, Joe, you have to believe that she did the best she could for what she could because she couldn't even help herself. Do you feel, do you love her? Um, I love that. I love that she was my mom and that she gave birth to me and that she didn't abort me, but I do not like her. I, if she was right. a person that lived next door to me, I would not like her. I would be like that fucking lady next door. I'm going to call the cops on her. Cause she's crazy. Okay. Yeah. But I love her because she gave birth to me, but I don't like her. What, how old are you? Let, let's go forward in some years here. How old are you when it becomes apparent to you that probably, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth here. So correct me if I'm wrong, right? that probably it is a good idea to seek therapy to talk about everything that has happened. You know, I didn't go into therapy until Matt and I were together for, I would say two or three years. And then him and I, maybe we were together. So we got together in Oh four. So maybe it was like Oh seven, Oh six. Wasn't much longer because Matt and I are so different. We went through this period when we first got together. Cause you know, when you first meet someone, it's all lust and sex and fucking, and it's all exciting. And you're like, yeah. I might not have anything in, we might not have anything in common, but I like that dick. So <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, it feels so, good to laugh again though. I have yeah, to say I've well, been like, you know, yeah. it's been heavy. I mean, yeah. Sometimes. Uh, okay. That's why I'll throw a laugh every once in a while because it gets so heavy. I feel like, you know, there's an elephant sitting on my chest. So yeah. um, we were so opposite. My husband and I now after, do you know tomorrow? Well, when this episode comes out, it won't be tomorrow. But the day we're recording this tomorrow is our 16th anniversary from the day we met. Oh, man. Happy anniversary. Thank That's you awesome. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And in the 16 years, we've actually kind of, it's so weird. We, I've become more like he was when we first met. And now he's more, because, you know, he's the introverted, very, very, very serious, dry sense of humor, very rational thinking. Uh, he's the one who's like, you shouldn't pick on Trump supporters. And I'm like, <laughs> Did, have you... Uh, I'm sorry, but it brings me joy. So I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, he's very, he's very clear thinking. I'm very emotional. And in the 16 years we've been together, we've kind of like, I've become more serious. I've become the one who's reading so much. And, you know, so we've kind of switched roles a little bit, but mm -hmm. back then we would say to each other, God, we don't have anything in common. Should we be together? Like, this is weird. Like we have no, like, we don't like the same movies. We don't like, we had nothing in common. So we started going to therapy to figure out like, is, should we even, should we continue this? Cause we don't have anything in common. And of course we learned like that sometimes you marry someone who is opposite of you because they provide you with the things that you don't have. Right. You know, the I think tool, that's most couples, like right? Tool, right? I mean, yeah. I could never, yeah. I could never be with someone like me. I would kill them. Right. Yeah. It'd be too so, much. Yeah. Like I, I feel the same way. It's like, you need the, you need just sort of opposite. 
somewhat. Yeah. Yes. So that was the first time I, we started going, we started going to marriage counseling and we um, found our therapist and we started talking about our childhoods and he knew what happened to me. Cause I've been very vocal ever since that, that time I sat down with my mom at the kitchen table after the police called and I said, yep, I was molested. I have for 31 years, I've been saying it like, it's just like, Hey, I got a glass of water. Cause I think it's important to, for people to hear it coming from someone they might not even imagine that would happen to. What was his reaction when you first told him? Oh, well, I don't remember his re first reaction, but I remember in therapy, I would talk about it just like I'm talking to you and the tears would roll down his eyes because he came from the family where, and I always joke about this, but it's a true story, like where they would eat dinner at six o'clock every night and he would fall asleep at the table and his dad would hold up his head while he was eating. Like, <laughs> so it was like so much love and, and, and um, cohesion and, Right. Yeah, and they're I, all together. And I was raised by a pack of fucking wolves. So we're so, so different. So it was it was in therapy where we started cracking into my childhood. And at that period, at that point, when I was like 32, 33 years old, I was still very broken. I was a I was an um, I led with emotion. I was always angry. I was. I was not as well equipped to deal with life as I am at 47. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you guys, okay. So, you, so he, you know, he learns about your life. You're, you guys are finding that you, I imagine you're finding that you do have more in common. Um, and when you, let's go back to the very first thing you said, when we started this interview, you said that he saved your life. Tell me. How. God. Do you know, I was just crying yesterday, um, Wednesday about this. So, uh, um, you know, I, because of my childhood and because of the way I was raised, I only invited chaotic people into my life. So you were talking about dating, dating people. Oh, I didn't really date a lot. He was only my third boyfriend. Um, okay. yeah. So no, I'm talking about just in friends. I was always, I was always attracted to the codependent. Um, I, it was very easy for me to be codependent. I, even to this day, I still follow the line very carefully with don't be codependent. You can't fix people. You can, mm -hmm. you can help people. You can talk to people. You can give advice when people ask, but don't take on their problems as your own and don't try to fix anyone. Because, you know, as a kid, I was trying to fix Irene. Remember, hey, if we move away to Florida and I get her away from Melvin or if I kill Melvin and he's not around, she's going to be OK. She'll be fixed. Mm -hmm. So um, it would have been very easy for me to continue this. Like when I was 30, I had um, I had friends who were very manipulative, very dangerous, very um, one of them stole my Social Security number and opened up a, a home phone in their name, like just people who were not the best quality human beings, if that makes any sense. Yes. And when I met my husband, he was the complete opposite of what I saw. First of all, I never thought I could be loved. Um, I never, you know, even though I had two other boyfriends, my first boyfriend ripped my heart out, put it through the paper shredder and then stuffed it back into my chest. Um, so I didn't think that 
I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm like Irene. I'm unloved. I'm unlovable. And then when I met my husband, um, I started seeing how normal, I hate to say this, but I started seeing how normal people were. I saw what, you know, oh, somebody who focuses on education, someone who doesn't get angry and just starts swearing, someone who wants to sit down and talk, someone who, when I get crazy, they just stare at me like, yeah, you dropped a fucking box of cereal on the floor. The house didn't collapse into the ocean. Like, calm down, dude. Calm down. Um, so he saved my life because he taught me. He, well, first of all, he showed me unconditional love. And he showed me what it was like to not have to always be in survival mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did he ever... did? Does he know that? Oh, yeah. So on last Wednesday, I had a, a meeting. Every Wednesday, I usually have a meeting with my therapist because I'm still in therapy because these problems don't solve themselves, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, I think it's great that you're open about that. Oh, yeah. I talk about therapy. I think a lot, I think so many people should be in therapy. I think especially this year, therapists should be making more than basketball players. And um, <laughs> right. I mean, hello, this year is a fucking nightmare. But I remember I was sitting on the sofa and we were talking about um, how, you know, I'm going back to school in January and I'm, yeah. I'm really on the fence of, do I, do I end the flight attendant Joe brand? Because my next path that my next chapter has to do with possibly, you know, becoming an editor, um, possibly becoming a, a teacher. So I don't know if I will have, I don't know if the flight attendant Joe brand and life will kind of end where I started in a new role. But we were talking about how, you know, when you're a kid, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. Um, when you're a kid and you, um, hold on. When you're a child, it's hard to focus on school and education when you're being raped. It's hard to think about I have to study for the spelling bee when you're wondering when I get home, are they drunk or worse? Are they drunk, but she's not home because now I'm going to get raped. You know, education becomes not important to you when you're in survival mode. And I spent so many years in survival mode. And a question my therapist, Steve asked me about it like two months ago, he just said, Hey, I want to ask you a question. And Please don't. This was when he was still first getting to know me. And now he knows he can ask me anything because I don't care. But he asked mm -hmm. me, um, when do you think you stopped being in survival mode? And I've asked this question. I brought this up in the in the show to people who have had fucked up childhoods whenever they tell me that. And he asked me, how long have you not been in survival mode? And it was just this it was this question that I never even imagined being asked because I didn't at the moment when you're surviving, you don't even realize you're in this mode. You just think this is my life. Right. And now that I'm in this adult and he asked me that question and I remember just saying 2012 and he said, why 2012? I said, because Matt and I had, we had been having some issues in Florida. We were living in Florida. We were having some, I wouldn't say marital problems, but yeah, we were having some marital problems where we were like, maybe this isn't working. And he broke up with me for a day. 
he came home and he said, I'm a, uh, he had just found out we were moving to California. He was getting this job and he came home and he said, I think I want to go on my own. Mm. And I was devastated. And I was devastated for about two hours where I was like, it could barely move. And then my survival mode kicked in and I said, all right, well, people hurt you. This is normal. You should have expected this. Shame on you for not for not knowing this was coming because everyone you've ever loved has hurt you. So put your boy pants on and figure it out. So he came home and he said, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making the right decision. I said, well, I'm already moving on to plan B. So <laughs> because that's how I because when you live in survival mode, you're waiting for the Drew. Yes, you're waiting and you yeah. cannot. And this is why I tell everyone to this day, all my airline friends who are like, I hope I don't get furloughed. I'm like, what is your backup plan? Because you, right. you need to have a plan B. And I tell my friends, even people who are like in the most incredible relationship where my husband would never leave me. And I appreciate, and I love that. And I hope he never does, but you should just have a plan just in case. Cause you never know what's going to happen. So I was moving on to plan B. I said, you know what? I'm going to go visit my friend in San Diego, regroup, figure out what my life is going to be like. So when I was in San Diego, like two days later, you know, he called me and he said, I've made a mistake. I really want to be with you. And I said, well, when I get home, we'll discuss it. So I came back home and we discussed it and we said, we're in this, we're in this together. We're going to make this work. So we left Florida and we moved to California where we didn't know anyone and we were starting over. So it was that moment of, yeah, we're in this together now and we're, we're in it till the end where I started realizing to myself, okay, I'm not in survival mode anymore. I can transition to the next role that I'm supposed to do, which is grow as a human being. Wow. That was, that was like, that was so transformative for you. Just also the, the act of like moving across the country that made, made you feel, I don't know, like independent, but yet you were with him at the same time. Right. It was, it was the, it was just this thing of, we moved from Florida. We got away from any negativity. There wasn't really any negativity, but it was just that fresh start. Of, yeah. Fresh start. I was going to say that new chapter. And we were together and we knew, all right, we got to make, the, we're going to make this work. And I would say, you know, we got together in 04 from 04 to 12. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. It was like, what, the first, what is that, eight years together? Um, mm -hmm. But from 2012 to 2020, um, it's been, I if I could, re I would say like from 04 to 12, it was like kids dating. And from 12 to 20, it's like adults being married, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like a more, a, a much more in-depth um, relationship where you're actually like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like you talked earlier about that kind of very early lustful time, which sounds like, you know, a, a lot of that lasted for you guys for quite a long time in terms of the kind of, you said, uh, hanging out and being kind of just having a lot of fun. And you're saying the second, the second uh, space of time, it, it's like feeling like quite mature and, and dealing with real, real issues and agreeing to stay with each other through it all. Right. And then, and then, um, I didn't, I think that's when I started not worrying about, like I wasn't in this survival mode like I had been in my 20s and 30s where I was just waiting 
for the shoe to drop. I was waiting for bad things to happen. And so I was able to become this person who, instead of trying to survive, I could focus on growing or learning, you know, being the best human being that I could be, even though I was handed really shitty cards, you know, we're all handled, we're all handle, handled, handed, Jesus Christ, we're all handed uh, a lot of people, you included, when you're born, you're handed a shitty deck. And sometimes you can play the cards, sometimes you can win at the end. A lot of people don't, a lot of people fold and they don't end up winning, or they don't even end up getting halfway through the game. And I just remember thinking, when my therapist asked me, like, when have you, when did you stop being in survival mode? I said 2012. And then I went out and I talked to, I was talking to Matt about that. And I just said to him, you really saved my life. And then I just started crying because I really do believe that meeting him set me down a healthy, normal path that I was not accustomed to. Yeah. Well, I think, Joe, I think you have a wonderful story. And I think that, you know, he, he, I know you've spoken about this on your podcast in many different ways at different times, but to hear it all from like start to finish, it's really illuminating, you know, and it's very, it's very moving. And it's, um, I think many people would have not been able to make it through what you've endured. And, you know, that says a lot about you. And so a ton of value. I mean, it's, it's like, I honestly, you know, I have, you and I have had very different stories, but I honestly cannot imagine being abused, raped, you know, all the things that we've called it throughout this time for that long without a support network with the only people you love, your grandparents looking the other way and you having to really raise yourself. And then in some ways raise your mother and then coming to this very, you know, understanding of forgiveness or at least accepting that she was, not able to do better and then dating people moving across the country and, um, and solidifying what is, what has been your life with Matt, even though I know you guys met in Florida, but I mean, solidifying a very long, are you guys married or no? Oh yeah. We've been married for a long time. Um, okay. Since oh five. I wanted to ask you one question about that. 2000, how 2005 you said 2000 and we got married in oh five. Yeah. In 05. I wanted to ask you one quick question about that, which is when you, since you did not have a great, I mean, I'm not even going to like bullshit around it. Since you did not have a parental model, how did it feel to marry someone? Because a lot of people, you know, like their framework of reference is their parents and you didn't have that. So how did it feel to then, you know, basically commit yourself to him? Um, it, it, when you never had that example play out in front of you, and you had a horrible, you know, it's not only that you don't have the example, because there's, there's many wonderful single parents, it's that you had pretty much the most atrocious example of what not to have happened. So did it feel, was it a stretch for you to marry someone? Was that something you had to convince yourself would be a viable option for you? Or was it something you really, you know, wanted to do and look forward to? Um, no, I never really thought anything about that. Um, I thought, oh my God, somebody wants to marry me and I'm all fucked up. This will be fun. <laughs> Yeah. I asked him yeah. to marry me and he said, yeah. So he's the one he can never complain. He said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's your fault, Matt. Yeah, like you, that. you, you know, done. no, yeah, no, I never, I never thought of that. Um, I, cause I knew that 
the marriages that I saw in my life were not the role modeled marriages. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't worry about getting married. I've always worried about having kids because I've always been afraid that I would yell at them too much or my anger would get too much or things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, today I'd probably be fine. Um, But, you know, when I was 20, 30, the idea of having a child, I was like, yeah, I can't be a parent because I I need to stop this bad parenting. Like I have to, mm-hmm. I have to nick this in the butt, and if it's in my DNA and my genes, why the hell would I want to do that again to someone? Right. Yeah. Do you have are do you have relationships with I don't know young younger children in your family where you can play the role of like an adult cousin or an uncle or like you know you know what I mean where you're not a parent but you still have that kind of a, a relationship of some sort? No, you know I have some friends with kids, but. I don't need, you know, I don't have that desire. I don't have a desire to be a parent. You know, sometimes I think, oh, that would be fun. And then I'm like, no, I don't think it would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to let, most... let you have all the kids and then I'll feel great. Yeah, well, I think like that's the, I always say like that the most important thing is that you're honest with yourself about that, about wanting to do that. You know, Joe, imagine how many people there are in this world who had kids who didn't want them. Yeah. Now imagine, I mean, that like makes Irene. the parent unhappy. I, like Irene. It's so exactly. weird because she obviously did not want to have a kid. But when my biological father was like, you need to have an abortion because I already have three kids. And she said, no, I'm like, dude, you had an out. But like I said, you had an option. Yeah. Yeah. She had a way to uh, vacuum me up, you know, suck me right out, but she didn't. And, you know, I'm glad she didn't uh, because then I would not be here right now on this podcast, but she really shouldn't have been a mother. (laughs) She really shouldn't have. It was bad. I want you to please just, you have that paper of the letter you wrote near you. I do. I do. You, I mean, I just have to tell you, I have ideas. Listen, I just have to tell you that I don't know what happened with this recording, but we only have eight minutes left on this um, SIM card before I think it's full. (laughs) All right, right. So I can make make that happen. Okay. Are we good? Yes. Okay. Go to the, you know, the last part of it. I have it on two pages. So it would be like the second page or the back part if you have it on one paper. But if you go all the way down to the third to last paragraph, it says, listen, kid. Okay. Do you see that part where he says, will you read from there to the end, Joe? Sure. Um, but I'll just let everyone listening know that on November 10th, 2017, on my 45th birthday, I wrote a letter to my 11-year-old self, and I sent it to you so that you could get a little bit of a um, an idea of what you were dealing with when I asked you to come on and interview me about this topic. So, all right. Mm-hmm. Listen now. So this is me at 45 writing to my 11-year-old self. Listen, kid, your life is going to be amazing, truly incredible. But here's something else, something important. Don't fight those feelings you have in your heart and mind about being different. You are different, and we don't have to put any labels on it right now. Just know that you are different, but that's okay, and it's pretty awesome. You'll figure that all out in your early 20s. All right, I have to go. I have a pedicure manicure appointment for our birthday. But keep your head up and remember, I am right there inside you and I'm here for the ride. Oh, and one more thing. 
There will come a day in the not-so-distant future when you will find yourself taking cooked breakfast sausage out of the refrigerator, rubbing them in the crack of your ass, and then putting them back in the refrigerator. You will then sit on the sofa and watch Melvin eat, heat up the breakfast sausages and eat them. Do not feel guilty about it. He deserves it. <laughs> Love me. Love me. Beautiful. Love me. Joe Thomas. You know, I think, uh, um, listen, I think everyone listening to this will leave, will leave with just a slightly different, you know, we're used to you being, and you have been extraordinarily funny through this interview, but I mean, you see a whole different side of you. And that letter, that letter was incredible. Um, I just think it's a beautiful piece of writing and I'm very, thank you for giving me the opportunity to ask you about these very sensitive things. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for actually coming on to the podcast and asking me these pretty difficult questions. Cause I don't think a lot of people would feel comfortable diving deep like this into someone else's traumatic childhood. You know, I, I probably should share the letter that I wrote to myself when this episode comes out, share it with the public so that people can put the two and two together and they'll get a full picture. So thank you for this. Thank you for coming on my podcast and giving me this opportunity to share my story with the world. Okay. Joe. Choose an airline, Hawaiian, Lufthansa, Air France, or British. What was the first one? Hawaiian. Okay, I'm going to pick Hawaiian because that's the only one that I've flown on. Okay. All right, so you're on a Hawaiian flight on this very long-haul flight. You get to sit next to one person. <laughs> that's my question. That is your question, that's but I always wonder question. what you would say. So the one person you'd like to sit next to on a long-haul flight Alive or dead, who would it be? Oh, goodness. Um, it would, at this moment in time right now, it would probably be, it's, oh my goodness. Now I know how everyone feels. This is a difficult question. Right, you feel very on the spot unless I, you have like a definitive answer. I will never ask this question again, or <laughs> I will ask this question for the rest of my life. Um, oh my God. I am, I would have to say at this moment in my life, this is going to sound ridiculous, but, um, Viola Davis. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Why? Um, well, I think she's incredible and I would love for her to cry next to me so that I could like wipe her snot because she's the best crier, but I would want, (laughs) um, I would want to talk to her about how it was growing up. And, you know, when you're growing up, you're a young person of color. You want to be an actress. You don't see many people that look like you on the screen. And I would just be very interested in hearing her journey of how she wanted to become an actress and how she made that happen. I would, I would, I, I love the answer. And I, and I, Totally did not expect you to choose Viola Davis. Though, what a wonderful conversation that would be, huh? Oh my God, yeah. Well, I would never pick Madonna. Never. I don't. I would never pick Madonna. But um, it would be her, or possibly Joan Rivers. If it wasn't Viola Davis, I would want to sit next to Joan Rivers because, for one, she was always so good to her flight attendants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every story I've ever heard, she was so good to the flight attendants. But two, um, 
could you just imagine sitting next to Joan Rivers for six? Well, she'd probably sleep for like 13 of those hours, but those three hours <laughs> that bitch was awake, it would be insane and so exciting. Yeah, she's a firecracker. Huh? Oh, she's yeah. like a, a real, uh, a real example to this world. I think in so many ways. Yeah. Whether you liked her or you didn't, she honestly was one of the first. Oh, she you was, know, she she's was, and the thing at the people, bar. The thing that people don't know about her is that, you know, yeah, she was crass and she said the most inappropriate things, but she like gave so much money to charities for like HIV research and for you know feeding people with HIV and AIDS in New York City. I mean, she did a lot of good stuff for the community and she was hilarious and so funny. So and had a very hard life and yet, you know, and was open about it but was able to to make it through so many obstacles like her husband I believe committed suicide and yes. You know, I I think um yeah, she, I always say it when people say, you know, people have very strong um, reactions to Joan Rivers and the people seem to either love her or hate her. And I say, no matter how you feel about her, she's at the bar, you know, for, oh, yeah. for yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. she set the bar for all these, all these comics, just like we're going to talk about Madonna for a minute. Like Madonna set up all these pop princesses to have these big, fabulous concerts. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Joan Rivers, All right. maybe squashed between Joan Rivers and Viola Davis, and then when I get bored, they could go at it. It would be fun. I wonder if they would get along. <laughs> it's like you never know who actually, you know what I mean? You never know who actually would uh, would get along amongst I those know. personalities as well. So, By the way, Joan Rivers also, like, didn't she have, like, a whole QVC line? She was quite a businesswoman as well. I think that was largely underreported. You know, she's, if you've ever seen videos of her life, I mean, she, oh, she was yeah. not by any means scraping at the bottom of the barrel. Oh, no, no. Oh, Carrie Fisher yeah. too. Oh my God, I would have loved to talk to Carrie Fisher. You know, she was a um, she was a script doctor. So if you wrote a movie script and it kind of sucked a little bit, you would hire her and she would come and she would fix your script. That's where she made so much money. A lot of people don't. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, I didn't know that. Okay. I mean, do you have time for one more question or what? I got to end it here. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I think we're good. Um. Okay, I'm going to ask you your second question since since you struggled with the first one. I love to hear like your answer to the second that you've asked everyone. Care of your husband, if you were offered an all expense paid vacation anywhere in the world, where is the one place that you would not go? Where's the one place I would not go in the world? Um like Afghanistan. Yeah. Okay. Probably Afghanistan. Yeah. I wouldn't go to Afghanistan. Yeah, no, I said Saudi Arabia. Maybe in the fifties I would have. Yeah, right. It's very different back then. Yeah, I mean they were. Yeah, it was a lot different then than it is in twenty twenty. So. Well, listen. Congratulations on everything that lays ahead of you. You know, whether oh, flight attendant Joe um, has more iterations or it's coming to an end. Either way, you've made a huge difference. I think in the lives of people and giving people so much to laugh about through your books through these podcasts, uh, through your work on your last one with LJ Salerno. I mean, it's just been really wonderful to watch. And I feel like no matter what you do next, everyone will be waiting to see what that looks like. And, you know, you're on top of all of it, Joe, you're just such a good guy. I mean, you're just really such a good guy. I'm thankful for you. And (laughs) I'm thankful for you, man. And, um, 
and, and thank you for this opportunity. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and interviewing me and talking about some really important things. I'm sure that some of these questions were probably difficult for you to ask. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. thank you for not, for not being scared to ask those difficult questions. Cause I mean, sometimes you have to, and, and this is one of those topics that you have to ask difficult questions. So thank you. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Please. Please mind, man. Um, all right. Have a great night. I will talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. And, uh, Tell your husband I say hi, okay? I, I will. Thank you so much for interviewing me. How exciting. You're I'm, welcome. Thank you, sir. Okay, bye-bye. It was lovely. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this week's episode of Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe, please subscribe to the podcast. You'll get alerts when new episodes air. Also, check out Flight Attendant Joe on Facebook and Instagram. And if you still haven't had enough of me, (laughs) check out the blog at www.flightattendantjoe.com.